Does God benefit from your mitzvahs? If he doesn't, then what's the point? In fact, if he doesn't, then why does it say in this week's parashat Behar and Bechukotai that you have to do Shabbat Le'ashem, which literally translates to a Shabbat rest for God. So wait, you need to rest for God? You need to let the land rest for God? As if God benefits from your rest? This is a question that we have to answer with the right answer because everything is on a line. As we see, Parashat Bechukotai gives us an extraordinary amount of scary threats if we get this wrong, if we get the Torah wrong, if we follow the wrong path. The threats that are in there, the punishments that are in there literally will make your body shake. So we have to get it right because many people are getting it wrong. And even though we've addressed it multiple times in the past, we always like to find more friends, more holy sages that will give us the clarification of what does it mean to do a mitzvah for God. Once and for all, we're not only going to see what the answer is, but we'll see that the answer has clear sources that are indisputable regardless of which avenue you look at. This precedes a whole list of questions from a live crowd from different people around the world to talk about different things that interest them, whether it's the heresies of the black Hebrew Israelites or Christianity or Islam, or it's interesting questions about what do you do when a bunch of yeshiva bachurim make fun of you for learning art scroll Gemara? Is there any value in what they're saying? Should I listen to them? Or are they considered heretics? Is it a sin? Is it a mitzvah? This and much more, including even teaching young children about Sachal Ve'onish, reward and punishment. How do you do it? He's only five, six years old. A lot of interesting things are discussed tonight. Enjoy it. Share it. Support it when you can. And sometimes push yourself till you can. And most importantly, remember, the only reason why we're here so we could be holy. We're back here on our Wednesday night Shior Stump the Rabbi series where uh, after some Divrei Torah, uh, you guys, Bezat Hashem, will ask me some questions and Bezat Hashem, Kadosh uh, Baruch will give us the answers. Uh, tonight we'll take the... Uh, questions from uh, our friends from uh, TikTok watching over there. We're also going to take the questions from Facebook and uh, anywhere else that uh, is necessary. Um, just uh, whoever is new to this year, just stay tuned. Usually I speak for about an hour about different things that are very relevant to everybody's life. Uh, and then after that, we start taking the questions. So uh, uh, we're not going to forget. And then the questions and answer session is pretty much as long as you guys have questions that are relevant and as long as HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives me energy, we keep going. Sometimes it goes on for a couple of hours, sometimes longer, sometimes a little less. But usually it's no less than an hour of questions. Tonight's you will be for the Refuah Shlema and Atzlacha Rabah of Rav Ephraim Ben Shulamit. Refuah Shlema for Rabbanit Sarah Bat Anat. Refuah Shlema for Rabbanit Levana Bat Sarah. Avi Mori David Ben Esriah. Imi Morati Doris Bat Jorah. And uh, also all of Am Yisrael and all the righteous Noahides that continue to watch and learn Torah with us, continue to support, continue to donate, and Bo Hashem for all of you. Uh, as a reminder for everybody that wants to get some free uh, stuff to uh, give out in your communities here in the United States, 
you could just go to the uh, Kiruv store that we have, bhkiruv.org. You could also donate over there, or you could donate on our website, which is bhtorah.org or bezatashem.org. Uh, and uh, most importantly, keep learning and try to share as much as possible. So we're trying to make it easy for you guys to uh, share. Uh, aside from that, there's a big thing coming to Eretz Israel in the next uh, 24 hours, Be'ezot Hashem. We're going to have 25,000 copies of my new book uh, in Eretz Israel for distribution. Anyone that is in Israel and wants to distribute the books for free, uh, please contact us and Bezat Hashem will get you as many books as you want. We have Baruch Hashem quite a few people already uh, on the list, but if you want to uh, distribute them, let me know and contact me on WhatsApp and the many other ways you can contact me. Okay, with that being said, we're going to get started. The greatest sages that uh, we've ever had uh, have continuously told us the same thing regardless of what the generation uh, you know, wanted if it was the generation to uh, the destruction of the Bet Migdash, the generation of Moshe Rabenu, the generation of the Enlightenment movement a couple of hundred years ago. And the reality is, is that one of the things we see is the common denominator with the sages is that they will always stick up for the truth. But in addition to that, Rabbi Israel Misalant had 13 principles. And this is not the 13 principles of fate of the Rambam but rather the 13 principles of midot, of character traits, that the Rabbi Yisrael Misalant made sure that he himself checks himself each day in these 13 different attributes, as well as his Talmudim. One of those attributes is truth, to obviously be a person of truth, but another one is determination, charitzut, that whatever you're determined to do, do it energetically. So sometimes it would seem that we are discussing perhaps the same exact issue, uh, you know, again, but in a different manner. And uh, it seems like, why won't we discuss something else? The truth is that the entire Torah is like uh, no different than your nervous system. It's just a spiritual nervous system. And many times all of these uh, matters connect. And it's no different than this week's double portion, double uh, Torah portion that we have. Parashat Behal and Parashat Bechukotai unveiling a lot of different things to us. Now, in the beginning of the parasha of Behal, we see that Akadosh Baruch Hu is commanding Moshe Rabbeinu, as he did many times before and after, to speak to Am Yisrael and give them a specific set of instructions. And the first set of instructions that he tells them is, Daber al Bnei Yisrael v'amarta alem ki tavou el ha'aretz asher ani noten lachem, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land that I am giving you, the land shall observe a Shabbat, rest for Hashem. So this is the mitzvah of Shemitah. Mitzvah of Shemitah, where the land has to rest every seven years. And the Torah goes into the details of this mitzvah. Why does the land have to rest every seven years? There's obviously many uh, teachings about it. How do the people that are farmers that depend uh, to make a living uh, on uh, you know growing uh, their crops every single year, how do they make a living? There's an answer for that. We've addressed a lot of these things in the past, but tonight 
We're going to address the obvious, something that perhaps has been staring us in the face many, many times, and we've addressed it to a certain extent in the past. But of course, in the way of Kedusha, you always want to find more friends. You always, when, you're, when you have an insight of Torah, you have a truth of Torah, it's not enough for you yourself to know it, and it's not even enough for you to find one sage that says the same. You want to find friends. You want to find as many sages as you possibly can saying the same thing. The only thing is, Hashem is not going to give it to you on a silver platter. You have to find it. Now, the question that we all have to answer if we want to be real, true, true servants of Hashem, is not about Shemitah itself. In fact, it has nothing to do with Shemitah, but rather something that is repetitive in the Torah and even starts as early as Sefer Bereshit, the book of Genesis, right off the beginning, where Hashem says, Shabbat, Shabbat Hashem. What does it mean, Shabbat Hashem? Literally, it translates Shabbat for Hashem. So wait, are we keeping Shabbat for God? As if to say, chas v'shalom, but to say, God needs the Shabbat? Because that's actually what it says again here. It says that the land has to uh, observe the Shabbat, a Shabbat le'ashem, a rest. Shabbat also means rest. A rest for Hashem. Now we have countless verses in the Torah that tell us that Hashem lo yishan velo yanum, he doesn't sleep, he doesn't rest. So how could it say if one end rests for Hashem and then it says he doesn't rest? So what does it all mean? This is why we always have to go to the commentary. To the commentary of the sages that we received already at the time of Mount Sinai because this will elaborate every single point. Now, of course, this is extremely important. And the reason why this is important is because you may not see what's on the line when you first see this verse. Whether you translate it the right way or you translate it the wrong way, what's the big deal? On one end, you could easily look at the Hebrew and say, well, it says, Shabbat for God. You look at the simple English translation by Art Scroll and many others, and you'll see it says the same thing, Shabbat for God. Now, why do we need to delve into this any further? I mean, it says it, so we just simply take it at face value. The problem with doing that is that the Torah is not literal. The Torah is not a literal Harry Potter book or a history book. There are meanings in every single thing, and one that does not take that into account has lost everything. And by that I mean that if they go on towards the rest of the parasha, they're going to learn many more details, but they're only going to find out what's on the line, that if they get these details wrong, in the next parasha that we have this week, which is parashat Bechukotai, where parashat Bechukotai HaKadosh Baruch Hu at first tells us to follow the Torah, to learn Torah, to observe the Torah and the commandments. But if we don't, he gives us several dozen verses full of the worst possible threats 
you could ever imagine things that literally you wouldn't even want to happen to your enemies would happen to somebody that gets this answer wrong. Why? Because if you get this answer wrong, that means you are incapable of following the Torah. Because you're not sure who you're following. It's the very basis of the Torah. If it says Shabbat for God, but it doesn't mean Shabbat for God, but yet you think it's Shabbat for God, you have a very serious fundamental problem. And that problem could be very costly as the Torah says that if you do not accept my word and will not perform all of these commandments and you will despise my statutes, if your soul rejects my ordinances as to not perform all my commandments so that you violate my commandment, I too will do this to you, meaning the deal is off, the protection is off, the sustenance is off, all of the good things that a person wants from God, the deal's off. And if that's not enough to get a person to change, God continues to give us more warnings of things that would happen, things that have happened to us multiple times throughout history. Whether it's strengthening the enemy to the point where the enemy became superior over us, or it's stopping the rain, stopping the money coming in, stopping the food coming in, destroying the crops in the fields, or if it's simply losing all blessings from all places, whether inside the home or outside of the home, and that's even before Hashem says that He will exact retribution for you, where He'll actually take revenge against those people with a plague, with war, with famine, a fury of decrees will be put on those that violate the covenant. Destroying everything and anything relevant to them. We're literally removing them from the earth, but in a very painful and slow process. Now, anyone that wants to know more details about it, perhaps we'll have some time to do some more later, but you could also watch some of my other lectures about Parashat Bechukotai. We have to go back to, how do we get this to stop? I don't want to get threatened by God. I don't want to go to Genom. I certainly don't want to live Genom in this world. So obviously I got to get this question right. What does it mean Shabbat for God? What does it mean anything for God? When it says for God, does it mean for God? Like you would say to your wife or your husband, this is for you, as in you did this for them? Or does it mean something else? As I've mentioned to you in the past, the Targum is something that we got at Mount Sinai. As Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to the people of Israel, teaching them the Torah, he also interpreted the Torah for them, and that's called a Targum. Onkelos, the righteous convert from a couple of thousand years ago, made this much more popular, again, where for a period of time this became less popular where it used to be that the person that's reading from a Torah scroll would read, and then there would be somebody that would do the Targum at the same time. 
allowing the entire community to not only hear the Torah, but also understand what's being said. So the Targum is very much a foundation of the Torah that we got at Mount Sinai. And not something that was written a thousand or fifteen hundred years later, like other parts of the Torah that were orally and then later on put in, in pa- uh, you know, ink to paper. So the Targum of the Onkelos gives us the insight. And Onkelos says, every single time that you will see in the Torah, where it says anything remotely close to for Hashem, or something referencing that Hashem would have any type of physical, uh, 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 any feelings or any physical attributes, he always clarifies what it means with the Targum. And he says, in a Shemitah, meaning the Shabbat, in a Shemitah, relinquishing before Hashem, not to Hashem, but before Hashem. Why does he do this? Says the Avat Yonatan, and also the Me'at Tzori, another couple of friends that we found, Baruch Hashem, that without Onkelos, the Hebrew Le'ashem, which translates literally to for Hashem, might be misinterpreted to imply that the respite in working the land is needed by him, which is impossible for Hashem. Hashem needs and lacks nothing. Onkelos therefore explains that the verse means that the resting of the Shemitah should be before Hashem and for His sake, not for the sake of improving the land, as farmers sometimes do when they leave a field to lie fallow for a season. So Onkelos says this, and then Rashi follows Onkelos's lead, explaining that the land shall rest for the sake of Hashem, meaning rather than to increase the output, meaning that there would be a benefit in rest, letting the land rest, which as we discussed actually last night, the Gemara says that if somebody has a field, he shouldn't plant on the entire field, but rather only on half of it, because that will allow one half to recover, and one, one half to produce. The following year, the one that recovered will produce double what it would typically re, uh, produce. And then the one that produced the first year will rest. And this way, the land will not only produce and stay healthy, but actually produce more as a result of this process than if you would have planted in the entire field. So many times people say, okay, yeah, I'll keep the Shemitah because it's actually good for my land. So the Torah says, no, 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 you're not supposed to do it, not supposed to do this mitzvah because it's good for your land, although that's a reality, it's still not the reason we do the mitzvah. You're doing this for the sake of Hashem, meaning in order to follow His mitzvot, not because He needs it, because that's impossible, as the sages say, as God needs nothing, but rather this is your way of serving your Creator and fulfilling is commandments because that's your job that's your role in the world the master the king does not need the servant but the servant needs the king so here we see that a couple of sages 
were just added to the list of a slew of sages that we already have that have clarified this big question, or at least what seems to be a big question for some people, of for Hashem not being literally for Hashem. But, of course, we want more. And we got it. Our own very dear Ramban, Naichmanides, spoke to us and told us that there's more to see, there's more to learn. And in fact, even if you want to disagree with the Targum, you could disagree, but still never arrive at a heretical conclusion. How could this be? Well, first, the Chiskuni says that Rashi means that one should observe the sabbatical year with the intent of fulfilling God's commandments and not for personal gain. And the Mizrahi writes that the Ramban also understood Rashi this way, but the Ramban does not agree with Rashi. In fact, does not agree with Onkelos. So does he think like the heretics that we've you know, fought against for the last several years that say that God needs you? God forbid to even say that, but we had to, just for the sake of entertainment. But he doesn't agree with what the Onkelo says. What does he say then? Although Rashi has certainly foundation behind what he's saying, because as the Ramban mentions, what the Rashi is saying is based on Torah Kohanim, based on the Sifri, so one of the foundations of the Oral Torah, and of course based on Onkelos, still there is more to understand. Meaning he's not saying he's wrong, but there's more to understand without even going out of the way and changing the words. Says, our sages of blessed memory did not mean this in their exposition, meaning he didn't mean what Rashi says, but rather they meant something else. Well, for all resting prescribed by the Torah on the festivals too are surely supposed to be for the sake of Hashem. Yet scripture does not state the expression for Hashem regarding any of, regarding any of the uh, holidays. Rather it states, for instance, that there shall be a rest for you regarding Rosh Hashanah. And it states on Yom Kippur, a day of rest, a day of complete rest for you. So what he's saying first is that it cannot be that this rest for Hashem is something else. Because if it would be something else, then you would have to say that all of the other holidays would follow suit. Meaning they would also have to be rest for Hashem. But in the holidays, it says rest for you, you personally. So obviously here, the Torah specifically uses the words rest for you meaning for God, and not for you. There's a reason why there's a difference between Shabbat and everything else. So the Ramban brings the Sifra, which is where Rashi's comment is based on. It says the exact quote of the Bereta in Torah Kohanim is as follows. A Shabbat rest for Hashem, just as it was stated in regards to the Shabbat of creation, a Shabbat for Hashem. Same thing that was mentioned in Exodus, chapter 20, verse 10. 
So too was stated in regards to the seventh year, a Shabbat for Hashem. Rather, the explanation of the expression Shabbat for Hashem, your God, that's stated in regards to Shabbat of creation, meaning the weekly Shabbat of that day, he rested and was refreshed. And for this reason, Scripture there continues that you shall not do any work. And that is why the sages said in Torah Kwanim that the same expression is stated regarding the sabbatical year because it is seventh in the cycle of years, just as the weekly Shabbat is seventh in the cycle of days. Thus the sages have alerted us to one of the great mystical concepts among the Torah's mystical concepts, one of which Rabbi Avram ibn Ezra has already alluded us to, for he wrote, the meaning of Shabbat for Hashem is that the sabbatical year, the Shemitah year, is like the Shabbat day. And the mystical concept of the days of the world is alluded to here in this place. Now cup your ears and listen to what I am permitted to let you know, says the Ramban. In the wording which I choose to impart to you, and if you merit, you will gain understanding of this esoteric concept. We have already written in the Torah portion of Bereshit that the six days of creation are representative of all the days of the duration of the world. And the seventh day is representative of the future Shabbat for Hashem. For during that seventh millennium, there will be a Shabbat for the great God. And this is as we have learned in the Mishnah on the seventh day, what haim, what song would the Levites recite? The psalm would be a song, a haim for the Shabbat, Mizmor Le Shabbat, Psalm 92. The Shabbat day referring to the future time that will be holy a Shabbat and rest for the one of eternal life. Now the days of the week are an allusion to that which God did in process of creation. And the years serve as an allusion to that which will transpire during creation, unfolding of the events of all the days of the existence of the world. And for this reason, the Torah was more strict regarding the sabbatical year than it was regarding all the other negative commandments as it decreed the punishment of exile for transgressing it, just as it is strict regarding the punishment for forbidden sexual relations. It is stated, then the land will be appeased for its sabbatical. Now, here the Ramban is, in so many words, without going away from the literal words themselves, explains to us what does it mean when you see something is for Hashem. Of course, Onkelos, Rashi, Mizrahi, and several other sages say, oh, it's not for Hashem, it is for yourself. You are doing something for yourself as your servitude of Hashem. On the other hand, the Ramban says, you don't need to go so far and say that this is a way to serve Hashem, but rather you need to simply understand that every word in the Torah is a world in itself. And in fact, when it says Shabbat for Hashem, 
that is telling you that it's connected to a different place in the Torah where it says Shabbat for Hashem. And part of the rules of interpreting the Torah, the, the uh, biblical exegesis, is to understand that anytime there are uh, sentences, words that are exactly the same, they have something similar, they have something to learn from each other. And he says, here when it says Shabbat for Hashem, it is simply telling you that just like the first time it mentioned the Shabbat for Hashem is referring to the years of the world, this is referring to the uh, ultimately when the uh, the um, the world itself will end. The six thousand years that this world uh, exists will cease, and the seventh millennium will be a completely different millennium, a millennium where it's going to be a world to come, a different world. As the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, page 97a, says that a day of God equals a thousand years. This is uh, from the uh, Tehilim, chapter 90, verse 4. And in essence, what the Ramban is telling us is that, of course, if it says, for Hashem, it has to mean, for Hashem. But don't think for a moment that for Hashem means what you think it would mean for Hashem, like for a person. Because that is impossible. It is impossible to interpret the Torah and ever say that anything that we do is something that God would benefit from. Because that in itself creates an imperfect God, a needy God, a non-God. Because anything that needs anything is thereby a servant of the person or the thing that is in charge of what it needs. So if God had something that would control him in any way, whether it would be feelings or be uh, 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 any type of uh, sacrifice or any type of mitzvah, that would in itself be contrary to him being God. So the Ramban says, even if you don't want to understand what the Targum that we've had for the last 3,000 years says, which is for God, is not God needing anything, but it's rather for his sake, meaning it's before God. You don't want to understand it? Fine. That means you want to understand something deeper, something Kabbalistic, Something from parts of the secrets, the deeper secrets of the Torah that I'm allowed to tell you, he says. Therefore, this for Shabbat, this for God's whole thing, it's referring to simply the timeline of the entire world. How long will this world exist for? That's it. So here we see that you don't have to get confused about whether we can do something for God like the heretics say, because as the sages have said time and time again, it is impossible. Now, unfortunately, people that do not learn sometimes have more arrogance than people who do learn. In fact, the more a person knows, the more humble he becomes because they realize the Torah is endless. So I unlearned ignoramus can easily tell you, listen, this could be your interpretation. Perhaps he got, uh, his own understanding is different. The problem with that is that it cannot be. 
because we have what's called a Masoret. Masoret means a tradition that we have since the time of Mount Sinai. In fact, the first Mishnah in Masechet Avot says exactly this. Moshe received the Torah from Sinai and passed it on to Yoshua. Yoshua to the elders. The elders to the prophets. The prophets passed it on to the men of great assembly. And the men of great assembly made three statements, be deliberate in judgment, raise up many students, and make a fence around the Torah. So here, the first Mishnah in Masechet Avot tells us that the Torah did not just get found in some cave or it's just something that we're not really sure what happened to it along the way. In fact, there is a precise list of names of all of the transmitters of the Torah since the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. It first starts with Moshe Rabbeinu. He got it at Mount Sinai. All three major religions in the world, whether it's Judaism, the truth, or the falsianity and Islam. Even they agree that Moshe Rabbeinu got the Torah at Mount Sinai and gave it to Am Yisrael. Perhaps what they don't realize is that he didn't just give it to everybody and there you go guys, we're finished, I'm out of here, I'm going on vacation for 40 years. He had to leave a leader that's going to continuously teach the people. And that leader had to have another other leaders that are going to teach the people because there was literally many, many millions of people and there was also generations that followed them. So Moshe Rabbeinu, he received the Torah directly from God at Mount Sinai. He passed it on to Yeshua Ben-Nun. Yeshua Ben-Nun gave it to the elders. These were the greatest sages of that time. All of them were prophets. But prophets at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu were different than prophets of later times. Hence the reason why the elders gave it to a different set of prophets, meaning Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Micha, and all of the other prophets that you have mentioned in the Tanakh. And the prophets transmitted it to the men of great assembly. These are 120 great sages, some of which were actually the last prophets at the time of the Bet HaMikdash. But there are others that the... Torah mentions by name from generation to generation the different leaders that transmitted the Torah to make sure that each and every single person that's learning today 3,334 years after we receive the Torah knows there's never been a lost generation. Even Even though there were times where many Jews went to idolatry, many Jews sinned, needless to say, many Jews got punished, many Jews became slaves, many Jews were killed, still the transmission of the Torah has been transmitted uninterrupted for the last 3,334 years. There's actually a precise list of names. Now, why is this so important? The Rambam, Maimonides, he comments... He comments on this and he says that Moshe received this Torah at Mount Sinai and the Torah itself was transmitted throughout the generation after Moshe Rabbeinu through a precise way that we need to know in order to have faith in it. And he says we know exactly who the names are there's a list of names for anyone that wants it I could send it to you but he says the biggest part 
is to understand that the oral Torah was eventually put into writing by Rabbi Udanasi. And Rabbi Udanasi did not just include his own opinions, but rather included all of the great sages' opinions from th- throughout all of the times before him. And in fact, even included the opinions of sages that were wrong. The opinions of sages that were not chosen. The opinions of sages that even changed their mind. In order to show each and every person throughout all of the generations that it's not just black and white, this is what it is and that's it. Everything was reviewed, everything was revealed, everything was debated in order to ensure that whatever we have, this is the truth and there is nothing else to talk about. Now, parts of the Torah are the mitzvot. And parts of there are different types of mitzvot. Some of these mitzvot, these alachot, I should say, are called Moshe Sinai, Meaning, we already know this for sure from the time of Moshe Sinai, there's nothing to argue about. We know this from the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. It's been a fact since then. There's nothing to debate about. There are a few dozen of those mitzvot, 30 to be exact, such as the measurements of things, the, uh, uh, the mitzvot of tefillin, the uh, rule of the number of peah gifts, uh, the, the type of ink that must be used for Torah scrolls, uh, the type of parchment that's used for a mezuzah, for tefillin, The laws of the Jews uh, were living uh, in Ammon and Moab that, uh, that they have to give Maser Sheni and so on and so forth. Different mitzvot that there is no debates whatsoever about. But then there are different categories of mitzvot where this oral tradition is mentioned in the introduction to the Mishnah by the Rambam. And he says the explanations that were received directly from Moshe that are hinted in the verse. And that can be drawn from the text by means of logical reasoning. Such laws may not be disputed. And when someone says, this is what I received, there can be no further debate. Second type of category is that laws that are known as Allah which cannot be proven as explained, but these laws may not be disputed either. Then there are laws that were derived by reasoning about which there may arise differences of opinion. And in such cases, the law is decided on the basis of the majority view. And such disputes come about when different rational approaches are used. And therefore, the rabbi said, if it is stated, uh, if it is a stated halacha, then we must accept it. But if it is open to discussion, let us debate it. Then you have the preventative measures that the prophets and the sages established in each generation in order to make a hedge for the Torah, as Hashem commanded us to do so in uh, Leviticus chapter 18, verse uh, 30. These are the Gzira Shava, uh, 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 as one of the examples uh, that was uh, adopted by the sages that no one is allowed to oppose uh, this Gzera Sha'ava in any way, 
This is a way that they interpret the Torah. Uh, one of the ways. Then you have the laws that were enacted by the rabbis in order to pre- preserve harmony among the people, which neither add nor take away from any mitzvah and practices, which would be useful for promoting Torah observance. These enactments are called takanot, or mean hagim, customs. And you're forbidden to disregard either of them. As Shlomo HaMelech says in Kohelet, he who breaches the fence will be bitten by a snake. And then he also included in there dissenting opinions, meaning opinions of sages that didn't agree, or opinions that simply that were not chosen. And the point being is, is that the Rambada is telling us we have an exact, precise understanding how our Torah was transmitted throughout all of the generations where there is no debate of whether our Torah is true or not for anyone that's learned in Torah. The debate is only among ignorant people. The debate is only among people that choose to be heretics because they believe they have something better to sell. And that's why the Rambam, in the very same first Mishnah in Masechet Avot, comments, and he says that one of the things that the sages taught us is to let fear of heaven be upon you. For the Torah also includes a commandment to fear. Fear God. As it's written, you shall fear God your Lord. And our sages said in the... uh, the Yerushalmi, Masechet Brachot, serve him with love and serve him with fear. And one who loves God will not neglect the commandment, while one who fears God will not transgress his warning. Meaning the two are necessary, but the foundation is fear. Why? Because if you love God, you're not going to Ignore the mitzvot, but you may still sin. And in order for a person to be righteous, it's critical for them not to sin, intentionally at least. Ideally, a person needs to have both, fear and love. And thus, fear plays a great role, says the Rambam, as a spur to observance of the negative commandments, particularly those mitzvot that emphasize obedience. Here this last word that the Rambam mentions is that fear of heaven is necessary in mitzvot that require obedience. One of the things that we must be obedient to is the tradition itself. If we have our sages from the Mishnah to the Gemara to the Geonim, Savoraim, the uh, Achronim, Rishonim, and so on, all of the great sages are giving us a tradition. We have no permission to change that way. We have no permission to go a different direction. Even if what we say makes more sense to us at least. In fact, the fifth Mishnah in Masechet Avod in chapter 1 says, Someone who neglects the study of Torah ultimately will inherit Geinom, will ultimately inherit hell. 
So here the Rambam joins the Ramban in telling us that even if you want to understand something different from what it's said, you must take into account that whatever your understanding is, it has to be standing on top fear of heaven. If it's standing on top fear of heaven, which means that you're not going to interpret things according to whatever makes sense to you, but rather you're going to interpret things according to what is permitted because it doesn't disagree with the tradition. Then you're going in the right direction. But if you're going to start interpreting things the way you simply decide that you want to, then at the very least, find yourself a friend. Find yourself other sages that have said something to what you're, you know, said the same thing you are. Now, what the public doesn't realize is that if you have, even if you're the biggest rabbi today, and you're bringing an insight, an understanding, and your understanding contradicts other great sages from the previous generation, and no one agrees with you, your understanding is simply by default wrong and no one's allowed to accept it. On the other hand, if no one talks about the subject that you talked about, that's a different issue. Rare to find such a thing, but needless to say, that's a different issue. So if you're going to say, listen, I have a new understanding that God needs us, if you want to bring that to light, you have to show the world who says what you said. And when these people are asked, who said this? The answer is, you don't need anyone to say it. You don't need a verse from a Torah that says it. You don't need a sage to say it. Because in fact, if you bring a sage, if you bring a verse then somebody else can debate you of what it actually means. So the moment you debate it, therefore it's worthless. And that's how they justify not bringing sources. As we see, this is literally contrary to the entire tradition, to the entire belief system of Judaism. There is no such thing as picking something out of a hat and saying this is true. If you do not have a sage that spoke about it, a sage that agrees with you, your insight, your understanding is worthless. Why do I need some great sage to agree with me? Because the way it goes is as follows. If I say something to you, as I said today, you're going to ask me, where did you get this from? Now I can tell you, I got it from Onkelos, I got it from the Ramban, I got it from the Ramban, but let's just go, let's go closer. Let's go closer. I got it from my rabbi, okay? I got it from Rabbi Frank Kachlo. He's a genius, he's a gadol, he's something unbelievable. What people study perhaps in a year, he studies in a day and more. So I got it from him. Now why do I trust what he says? Because I know where he got it from. And you see, he got it from Rav Ovadia. He got it from Rav Gidon. He got it from the great sages of the yesteryear. 
Now, if you have something like that, that means that you have your rabbi taught you, he brought you a source. Let's say he brought you Ravavadya. You know that Ravavadya also brought a source. He'll bring you, let's say, the Gaumi Vilna from a couple of hundred years ago. Then you look at the Gaumi Vilna. Where did he get it from? And he writes a source. He got it from, let's say, Darizal. And then you see the Arizal, perhaps he, uh, you know, he lived at the same generation as Rabbi Yosef Karo. So it's hard to say that he got it from Rabbi Yosef Karo, but let's just go that they both agreed on something, which is real. They, they have agreed on many things. Let's say he got the, uh, him and Rabbi Yosef Karo uh, studied one day and they both, or they both arrived at the same insight. The point being is you have a, uh, the tradition keeps going backwards then you have let's say you go to the Ariza or you go to the Rabbi Yosef Karo or you go to any of the other great sages that lived at that time you go to the Sefer Hasidim that's a little bit before them then you go to the Ramban or Rabbeinu Yonah that's part of the Rishonim and you go a little before them you go to the Rambam then you go to Rav Chai Gaon then you want to go to Resh Lakish in the Gemara you want to go to Abaye, you want to go to Rava. Then you will say, okay, but also, where did they get it from? Oh, they got it from Rabbi Udanasi. Where did he get it from? Oh, he got it from his teacher, Rabbi Meir Baraness. Where did he get it from? He got it from his teacher, which is Rabbi Akiva. Where did he get it from? He got it from his teacher, Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos. Where did he get it from? From Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai. And then you go to Shmaya Naftalion, you go to Bet Shemayin Bet Hillel, before even Shemayin, after Shemayin Naftalion. And then you go from them, from the Zugot, you go to the prophets. And we know the list of the prophets. It's listed in the Tanakh. The point being is, is that when you bring a source, it's not just, oh, he's a really smart rabbi, therefore I trust him. It doesn't work that way. Not in the Torah world. You perhaps can do that in business if you want to declare bankruptcy at some point. You could perhaps do that if you're buying a house, if you probably want to make a lot of mistakes. But you can do that with other things, but you can't do it with Torah. Why? Because Torah sits on top of a foundation of rules. Not just the rules of what to eat and who to marry and and, and when to uh, go to the mikveh. No, no. It's rules of how the Torah itself was transmitted. Rules of how to understand the Torah. So... The sages teach us that this has been a tradition since the beginning. This has been part of the rule since the beginning. It's not something that changed over time. It always had to be from father to son, from teacher to to student. And it was so critical that we literally have the names of every leader of the generations. So when somebody says to you today, I have a new insight but no one mentions it before me, you already know that this is not just a red alert, a red flag. This is simply a warning to run away before it's too late. Because this type of mentality that you can bring something new under the sun is contrary to the foundation. And in fact, the more learned the person is in Torah, the more they understand that 
there is no argument against the Torah because even if you're very smart many many smarter people studied it much more intensely and verified it before you before you not just a few thousand years ago before you yesterday before you 10 years ago before you 30 years ago before you 50 years ago before you 100 years ago 150 200 500 all the years you could possibly imagine and all of those great sages made sure that if they had any issue with anything whether it be validity or simply the understanding of anything they wrote about it they debated it they unfolded and extrapolated whatever they could from it and yet the rules had to be in play meaning there are certain things that are open for debate but there are things that are not open for debate and even if you want to say that the issue you're bringing up is open for debate that only means that you have to justify your debate not by your opinion but rather by the opinion of much greater sages that lived hundreds or even thousands of years ago and bring it up to light now you can't just say i have something new and therefore you need to agree or you need to believe or this is the truth because if none of the sages are your friends and yet you're continuing to teach what you're teaching then you my friend are not a friend but rather an enemy an enemy of the people an enemy of yourself and an enemy of god and that is a very fundamental principle in our judaism that is necessary for each and every single one of us to understand in order for a person to grow with the truth because so long as a person does not agree with the foundation of judaism whatever you build is going to be like a straw house bound to fall so there's much more to say but i know that you guys have a lot of questions so Bezat Hashem, we're going to start taking questions after i get a quick drink okay let's see awesome thank you very much Bless Israel forever. Enemy of the sages and enemy of God. Yes. 100%. Uh, let's see. Hebrew has been lost. Not sure if you know what Hebrew is, but I've been speaking Hebrew since birth. So we speak Hebrew, and Hebrew was never lost. So that's a uh, lie uh, to the maximum power. There's no such thing as Hebrew was lost. Hebrew was never lost. So, all right, so the question, here we go. All right. Um, Shalom Aleichem. 
What about the gym? Does the Torah mention gym? To go to a gym? Yes. There's a verse in the Torah that says that you have to protect your body, meaning you have to do whatever you can to keep your body healthy. Now, if for you to maintain a healthy body requires for you to exercise in a gym, there's no problem of going to the gym so long as, number one, the gym is only one gender. Because you cannot uh, do the exercises and all the different things when there is people that are walking around from the opposite gender because that will arouse forbidden thoughts. So to go to a gym where there's both male and female, that's forbidden. But if you go, if you're a male and you go to a male-only gym, or if you're a female and you go to a female-only gym, there's no problem. Number two, you don't make it the ultimate purpose of your life. I mean, I know that uh, some people like to exercise, they enjoy exercising, they believe exercising is important, and none of those things are a problem until you've made those the number one priority in your life. If exercising has become the number one priority in your life and you're constantly building yourself to be some Greek statue, that's not a good thing. Uh, because your body is something that's temporary. Even if you exercise every single day of your life, at some point that body is going to be eaten by maggots and different meat-eating worms. If you ever see the worms that are in graves, they're very, very big, very thick, and they eat meat. So that body that you exercised and, and, and built and all that, that's, it's going to be eaten by worms. But the soul, which is the real you, that part continues. If that soul was ignored throughout its life because the body was the primary focus, then obviously you're not fulfilling your purpose. There's no problem of exercising, there's no problem of, uh, of keeping good health, but it's not the priority in life. It's just simply one of the things that a person can do in order to maintain good health. And in fact, there is a mitzvah to do that, but there's many mitzvot, and a person needs to fulfill as many of them as possible, not just one mitzvah. Next. Can I go to a gym on Shabbat? No, you cannot go to the gym on Shabbat. Uh, not only because it's a, uh, usually the gym is usually far away from people's houses, which will require a person to uh, uh, get out of the Louvre, get out of the uh, community, but it's also, even if a person says they want to go running uh, or lifting weights on Shabbat, this is not allowed because it is not the uh, correct behavior for a Jew to do on Shabbat. On Shabbat, what a person is supposed to do is to pray, to have Kiddush, to spend time with the family, to, to learn Torah, to rest. That's the purpose of Shabbat. Just like Hashem stopped creating, a person needs to stop creating. And uh, that includes creating new muscles and uh, new uh, cubes to, uh, to reflect on. They have to make sure that they're uh, spending some time nourishing their neshama, the part of themselves that is permanent and not the part of themselves that is temporary. Am I allowed to go to the pool on Shabbat? No, the pool is also forbidden on Shabbat uh, because you're not allowed to wash your entire body at once. If somebody is uh, dirty, let's say they've, uh, uh, they've uh, I don't know, they put their hand in mud or they have uh, something on their leg, there's no problem of washing that body part with cold water. Hot water is not allowed because it would uh, be a lighting fire. But uh, cold water is allowed, but only to wash uh, part of the body, not uh, the entire body. Uh, you can wash your arms, you can wash your legs, but not the entire body. So when you go into a pool, you're, it's in essence the same thing as going into a shower, and that is forbidden. Uh, and uh, this is uh, one of the things that the sages talk about 
הנה גמרא על מסכת יומה. What do you think of rabbis who believe we are not holy enough to live in Israel? Uh, well, those rabbis uh, can uh, provide you a source uh, that uh, would say that. No, the answer is no. You're not going to find a single rabbi that well, could provide a source that uh, Am Yisrael is not holy enough to live in Israel. You will find some rabbis Uh, that can provide your source that perhaps we weren't allowed to uh, to take over Israel where you know 1948 when there was the whole uh, uh, UN uh, acceptance of uh, you know the uh, modern day Israel that wasn't really uh, a what people think most people think that there was no Jews in Israel before 1948 that's a mistake Jews have been living in Israel throughout all of the years Certainly there were times that there were very, very few uh, in Israel, but uh, there was a, a huge amount of religious Jews starting to immigrate into uh, Israel uh, during the 1800s. But then the Zionists uh, that are anti-Toah, that are not religious Jews, that are against the Toah, and many times they're actually even Christian missionaries, they uh, started working with the different governments and so on, and eventually by 1948... They got the UN to agree to uh, allow uh, the, the Jews to declare this their land. Of course, there's many wars after that and so on. Now, some of the uh, uh, great uh, rabbis of that time didn't, uh, uh, didn't agree at all with what the, uh, uh, you know, what the Zionists were doing. And uh, in fact, some, uh, some disagreed so much so that they tried to stop them. But the, uh, once we got the permission to move to Israel, many, many of the great rabbis moved to Israel. And in fact, over time, most of the great uh, communities were from all over the world, whether the communities from what was left of Poland Jewry or Russian Jewry or Ukraine Jewry or other parts of the world, or Middle Eastern Jewry from Morocco, from Yemen, from Syria, everybody uh, moved to, uh, to Israel over time. Uh, some, of course, went to America and other countries, but a great amount of people and, and great sages went to Israel, even if they didn't agree with what happened politically in 1948 and the years before it. They still went there because they figured that since we already got it, even though it wasn't the ideal way to get it, it wasn't the ideal way to do things, they would prefer to wait for the Mashiach to come and, and, and make that happen. They still said, now that we have it, we, we're moving there. Because it's our land anyway, God already decreed that. Now, the Hasidut of Satmel is the primary Hasidut that was a, uh, a zealous and uh, to the point where they said, even though uh, they, uh, they got it and, uh, you know, there is a, certainly a, uh, a many great people living in Israel, they chose to stay out of Israel because of this fight and because they do not believe that you have the right to live in Israel until the Mashiach comes. This is not because they don't believe that the Jewish people are holy enough uh, to live in Israel, because that would mean that Satmer would think uh, that anyone living in Israel is wicked. And this is obviously not true, because they were, uh, you know, there's great uh, 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 tzaddikim living in Israel throughout, uh, throughout the generation that, uh, you know, they were very friendly to Satmer and many of the uh, Rabbi Yoel 
and uh, many of the great leaders that they uh, have had uh, to this day. So, of course, this is uh, simply the decision of Satmel not to live uh, in Israel, not to be part of the Zionist rule that's there, that's obviously anti-Torah, and uh, this is what they chose. They're waiting for the Mashiach to come. Now, that's not because of lack of holiness. That's because of their belief, their tradition is that there's no permission whatsoever to go to Eretz Israel unless the Mashiach comes. Now, the rest of the uh, great sages, even if they agreed that we weren't supposed to go to Israel until the Mashiach comes, they simply concluded that since we got it and we have the permission to go, we're going and just make the best out of it. And now that you have the vast majority of Jews uh, in the world living in Israel for the first time in uh, you know uh, many, many years, the, the argument is no longer a valid argument, meaning that uh, there is no undoing what was done. The Jewish people are in Israel. They're there to stay. There's nowhere else for them to move. There's nowhere else that we, that they, we want to move to. Anyone that, uh, any Jew that wants to live in Israel can move to Israel. Uh, it's uh, certainly available. It's not easy, but where is it easy? You know, I don't know any country in the world that it's easy to live in, but needless to say, there are certain sacrifices that a person needs to make if they're choosing to uh, live in Israel, just like the Gemara uh, says uh, that uh, there's three things that a person has to make a sacrifice for in order to acquire them. One is Torah, two is Olam Abba, meaning to go to heaven, and three is to live in Israel. Living in Israel has its own unique difficulties, but that's not to say that you shouldn't live in Israel if you have the opportunity to. The point being is, is that Israel is an extraordinary place with the most amount of righteous people in the world living there. Most amount of scholars in the world live there right now, despite the fact that you have a government that's against the Torah and against the, uh, 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 the, the righteous people and against everything we stand for. Still, we stay there. We, uh, we, uh, we support there. We do whatever we can uh, to be there, not because we're befriending the wicked, but rather because we're doing whatever we can to uh, empower the, uh, the righteous and to empower the ones that are loyal to the Torah in order for us to uh, benefit as a, as a uh, not just a, uh, as, as small communities, but as a nation. So to live in Israel, uh, again, the ideal way of getting there was not done, but needless to say, now that we're there, there's simply nowhere else that we'd rather be. I live in America not by choice. I live in America by simply because this is my role in the world. I have to help Jews of the exile uh, do tshuva, get closer to Hashem. Now, even though many of the things that I do are online, uh, still even that and many other things that we do behind the scenes are only possible, uh, or at least to the same extent currently, uh, if I live where I live. So, Bezad Hashem, one day we are looking forward to going to Israel. Uh, and, and living there, not just visiting. But in the meantime, we have, Baruch Hashem, many Talmidim there. We have a Kolel. We have uh, a lot of uh, uh, great things that uh, we, keep, uh, we keep doing over there and sending over there. But, you know, again, everybody has to fulfill their role. If a person has the ability to fulfill their role in life living in Israel, they should live in Israel. If they don't have a way to do that, then they need to live wherever they could. And the main part of the role is serving God. Okay, let's see. The Torah talk about heaven, hell, and afterlife. Okay, so I guess you're very new. Uh, yes, we have actually several 
uh, films, not just lectures. We have many lectures that we discuss, heaven, hell, and uh, the afterlife. Uh, but there is uh, several films that we've made discussing the afterlife. The most recent one is the most powerful one. It's a film called Gehenom. If you go to Rabbi Yaron Reuven on YouTube, or you go to my uh, um, website, bezatashem.org, you'll see there's a banner there that says Gehenom. That is a movie. It's a three-hour movie that shows not just uh, biblical proofs of uh, discussions about Gehenom, but also the discussions by the sages, discussions by scientists, discussions by different types of scholars. In so many words, our goal was to uh, give a uh, conclusive proof that not only is Gehenom something that is a uh, discussed in the Torah, but it is proven in, from all aspects of wisdom. So Gehenom is where a person goes to uh, as a punishment if they did not fulfill their role. But Gehenom is not the only part uh, where a person could get punished. There's also something called Kafakela, there's Chibuta Kever, there's reincarnation, uh, and certainly there are many, uh, many different uh, chambers within each one of them. Some of this stuff, much of this stuff is discussed in that film. We also have another film called Chibuta Kever, which is the, uh, what happens to a person the moment that person dies. If the person is righteous or if the person is wicked, the moment a person dies, what happens to them? This is a very scary movie, uh, but uh, needless to say, it's full of factual evidence, including even a uh, video. Uh, point is, is that this is uh, available. And we have many, many lectures that talks about uh, reward and punishment, as this is one of the 13 principles of faith. Anyone that is righteous according to the Torah is going to go to heaven. Anyone that's wicked is going to go to a place of punishment, like the ones that I've mentioned, kafakela, reincarnation, a genom, uh, or a mix of uh, multiple parts of them. Point being is, there is no such thing as a, uh, as a person going against the Torah and sinning against God without a consequence. Anyone that says that the God does not punish gets an additional punishment for the audacity of thinking that God does not punish. Uh, because reward and punishment is in fact an act of mercy, an act of truth. If God does not punish, then that means that anybody can become Hitler, anyone can become evil, anybody can become a terrorist without any consequences. So what's the purpose of the world? On the other hand, if you say that everyone is uh, going to get punished, then what's the purpose of giving us these commandments if we're all going to get punished anyway? So it's important for a person to know that there is a reward and punishment in, uh, in the world, there, and of course, since there's reward and punishment, there is extraordinary reward and extraordinary punishment that's superior to what's available to us in this world, or else there wouldn't be a purpose for, for this world. If this was the ultimate purpose, why, why do we need to do any more than, uh, than uh, uh, to, to get something better? So a person needs to know that there is reward, there is punishment, and a person that follows what the Torah says will get rewarded. A person that does not follow will get punished. And sometimes... The, when a person learns about the punishments, uh, they, uh, they, they, they get very, very emotional because they didn't realize how bad it can get, how horrible the consequences are for people that violate the Torah. And whatever a person can imagine is horrible, multiply that by a million and maybe you'll get there. On the other hand, whatever you think is good, multiply that by a billion and maybe you'll get there of how good it is for even a single minute. So there is reward and punishment. It's very, very uh, uh, fundamental 
uh, to our belief system. And in fact, any normal civilized human being knows that there has to be a rewards and punishment system. There has to be a heaven. There has to be a hell, meaning a place for uh, reward and a place for punishment for God to be a just God. Uh, because if there wasn't any reward and punishment, he wouldn't be a just God. Because if everybody goes to a place of reward, why do you know? How is this just? So a person that murders and rapes people, he gets you know the same benefits and 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 pleasures as a person that was righteous and honest and helping people all his life. Obviously, this could not be. So there's a place for punishment. There's a place for reward, and there's many lectures that we have about this topic. But I suggest you start with some of these films because they're certainly going to help you. Aside from that, you could also see reward and punishment in the world. Uh, one of the ways that people learn about reward and punishment in their world, if it wasn't from their life, was from my life. There's a movie about that. It's called Hashem Took Back His Millions. You go to the same place that I've said, or you just simply go to my profiles. It, the film is relatively popular. It's already hit, I don't know, maybe over tw- 10 or uh, more than 10 or 12 million uh, uh, views across our different channels in different languages. And Hashem Took Back our, our, His Millions is a film about my personal life and the uh, extraordinary amount of success and suffering that, Baruch Hashem, thank God, I uh, went through in my life uh, for your benefit. For your benefit, not that I'm uh, righteous or I'm your savior or I'm anything, but simply for your benefit to learn from what I did, the mistakes that I made, so you don't repeat them. You don't repeat those mistakes and you do much better than what I did and uh, transform your life to be better without you know, having uh, God force your hand, like, uh, like my hand was forced in so many words. So you can watch that movie as well, and then go on to the other films, and there's many, many other films and lectures that we have on our channels. Everything is free. Everything is available uh, for the person that uh, simply could uh, uh, open their mouth and as wide as they want, and they'll get as much Torah as they want. There's literally thousands upon thousands of lectures and films that uh, we make available. Everything is free. Okay, next. Whose side should we be on with the protests? Uh, Depends what the protest is about. Why aren't there very big rabbis or sages anymore like in the past? Uh, There are many big rabbis in the world. Perhaps you don't know them, but there are many great rabbis in the world. If you uh, spend some time in Bnei Brak, in Yerushalayim, in different places, in, uh, in Tzfat, uh, you'll end up uh, at the very least uh, uh, seeing multiple rabbis walking in the streets that are giants among giants. Uh, some that are very popular and famous in, uh, in, around the world, some that are less popular around the world, but very famous in, uh, you know, in specific communities, whether it's uh, you, you know, different great rabbis, uh, from uh, different Hasidutes, Hasidut Satmer, Bobov, Tzans, and so on. Uh, or you go into the Sephardic communities, you have Rab Mazuz, uh, one of the great uh, rabbis of the generation. You also have a uh, extraordinary Talmidei Chachamim uh, that uh, are, uh, you know, very, very big. Uh, that uh, there's um, Rav Cohen, Rav Yeshua Cohen, he's, uh, he probably completed the Shas uh, 10,000 times. Uh, something that's incomprehensible to anybody else, but yeah, anyone that watches his shirim or, or has ever met him or spent time uh, learning with him knows that this is a person that uh, literally is, uh, is, is less human than you can possibly imagine. I mean, he's a genius. No, he's an average person. He looks like an average person. He, uh, 
uh, acts like an average person, but the, the, the knowledge, the breadth of knowledge uh, that he has and how much he studied and how much he knows is, is unbelievable. And when I say he studied, the, uh, completed the Shas 10,000 times, I'm not kidding. This is exactly what Rabbi Ephraim told me. This is exactly what I've, I've seen in my own eyes. The, the amount of uh, wisdom that's coming out of him is not just wisdom that is a, oh, he remembers nice things. He simply could tell you, and he gets tested publicly from his students about the entire Shas, the entire Shas Bavli, Yerushalmi, and he tells you exactly where everything is, which number word it is on the page, on, in the book, which page it is, what side of the page, how the page looks like, uh, what's around it, what's before it, what's the commentary, literally, and he, and he does it, he does this thing, like he moves it on his hand, but there's nothing on his hand, but he's literally, he sees the page, every page in the Talmud, I mean, it's unbelievable, so wisdom like that uh, certainly does exist in the world, you just have to uh, 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 get to know more Torah scholars, spend more time with Torah scholars, I spent Bo Hashem some time with Torah scholars, I spent a lot of time with them, uh, and uh, it's they're they're amazing. But again, unlike the secular show-off world, where uh, you know anytime somebody uh, gets a uh, you know anything of value, anything of uh, of notary uh, of notoriety, uh, they want to make sure that uh, their million uh, followers on Twitter and, uh, and and TikTok and and every other channel know it also, even if it's not no, uh, noteworthy. So the, the, the rabbis, the great sages are not that way. They're not, you know, they're not spending their time on Twitter or on TikTok and, and anywhere else making sure that every meal that they eat, the world knows about. But if you go to their kolos, their yeshivot and everything else, you could sit down, you could learn next to them, you could ask them questions, and you could literally uh, drink from their, uh, from, from their wisdom uh, and without, without much difficulty. But it's, uh, you know, it requires a person to go. And there are certainly Talmidei uh, Chachamim around the world. It's not just Israel. There's, there's Talmidei Chachamim in, in, in America. There's Talmidei Chachamim in, uh, in, in other countries. Uh, so it's, it definitely exists. What do I think of the Hebrew Israelites claiming to be the original Jewish people? Well, uh, mental illness is uh, unfortunately uh, in, in, is not a curable uh, disease uh, when the person is not willing to admit that they're, they're sick uh, and the person is not willing to take the medicine. Uh, so in, in so many words, that's what they are. They're mentally sick people. Uh, spiritually sick they've always been that's not a new thing but they're mentally sick and uh, it's not a uh, it's something that we've discussed in the past uh, and uh, we stopped discussing it because I simply you know concluded that there's just there's no help like initially I wanted to discuss it in order to shed light on the issue and hopefully save some of them and help some of them discover the, the truth because Judaism is available uh, for anybody who wants to, uh, to, to, to join us, you want to convert to Judaism, there's no problem. But they're not interested in Judaism. They're interested in, in authoritarian rule. They're interested in, in simply uh, uh, causing harm to anyone that uh, doesn't look like them or doesn't agree with them or a combination thereof. 
uh, and uh, they're simply very, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, bad people. Uh, and unfortunately, they, uh, you know, their, their stupidity somehow has fooled many, many people that are also unlearned, uh, but to the point of fanaticism. So when somebody's fanatic, uh, they're, you know, the common sense is no longer a tool that you can use to help them. Uh, knowledge is no longer a valid uh, uh, tool because they, they're not interested in knowledge because their leaders are going to manipulate whatever knowledge you provide to serve their agenda. So it's a very sad case. I have actually a few students that used to be uh, Israel, Hebrew Israelites and then they were you know, some of the lucky few that uh, discovered the truth and Baruch Hashem, uh, some of them converted to Judaism already, some of them uh, uh, are in the process of conversion to Judaism. But to be honest with you, it's a few and far in between. Many of these people already knew that there's something wrong with the uh, Hebrew-Israelite nonsense, you know, well before they met me. Uh, perhaps I added a few cherries to the top, but uh, certainly there is a, they knew there's something wrong with it because there's no two Israelites that believe the same thing. And in fact, they have no tradition. They have no history. They have nothing. It's just a bunch of thugs that like to wear costumes and play video games and watch... Uh, 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 you know, all types of pornography and promote all types of promiscuity and immodesty on their channels and their, you know, filthy mouths. Uh, and in so many words, they violate the Torah without even realizing that they're violating the Torah. Like, they're so ignorant about the Torah, they don't even realize what they're doing. So a person like that, you can't really help. So there are some people among them that were educated enough to know that there's something wrong and therefore they left. Some people, unfortunately, had to suffer a lot of pain before they realized this because it is a uh, cult of, of, of fanaticism. Uh, but there are many that are joining them, uh, not because of a common belief system, because like I said, you're not going to find two groups with, with the same beliefs, but rather because there is a desire for leadership. There is a yearning for leadership. There's a yearning for rulership. And uh, what they don't realize is that, uh, you know, even if their group, uh, you know, becomes uh, bigger and greater, it won't help the individuals. It'll only help the, the pigs on top. And that's unfortunately one of the things that we've seen in society many times. So uh, what do I think about them? I think that uh, the leaders are evil and the followers are uh, victims. And uh, any one of them that's interested in learning art to it's available for free. And uh, we hope that they learn it and, and, and change their ways. Doesn't mention Islam in the Torah. Well, the, uh, uh, the, the father of Islam is one of the sons of Avram. His name was Ishmael. Ishmael initially was a very wicked person, but the sages teach us that later on in his life, he actually changed his ways. He did tshuva. The problem is that his children were not uh, followers of, of the good that he uh, started doing, so many of them went in uh, bad ways. Either way, he is, the, in essence, the forefather of, of, uh, of the Muslims, but that's not to say that, uh, that, uh, that Islam in itself is a uh, righteous religion. Because even though Islam is monotheistic, uh, it's not idolatry like Christianity, uh, Islam is based on a very similar foundation of lies to Christianity. 
where their book is a uh, claims to be a continuation of what started at Mount Sinai for the Jewish people, yet it contradicts it. Yet it, uh, there are parts of it that talk about killing the very same Jews that are the chosen people. And, and, and it says many things that simply do not make any sense whatsoever uh, if you look at the details, such as that uh, Jesus being alive at the same time as Moses, even though we know for a fact there's a 1,500-year difference between them, uh, Jesus being the, uh, uh, the, the son of Miriam, the, the sister of uh, Moses and Aaron, which is obviously uh, just a stupid thing to say. There's nothing else to say about that. It's just, it's, it's, it's historically wrong. It's, it's, it, it's just simply no, uh, no normal person on planet Earth uh, that studied either religion or history or both would agree with such a thing. Uh, but it says it in the Quran. It says that uh, Haman and Paro were friends and they spoke. Obviously, they lived in two different uh, millennia. I don't know how people that lived and died in two different millennia can actually be friends. And it says other things like that that are, uh, that are easily uh, showing that the Quran was a man-made, uh, flawed document that's full of errors. And needless to say, it has things in it that are uh, contrary to the Torah. For example, there's a permission to lie according to Islam. You are allowed to lie. Even though the Torah that says that it will never change has a verse in the Torah, Midvar Sheker Tichak, from a thing of lies, stay away from. Meaning not only you're not allowed to lie, but you have to stay away from lies, stay away from liars. So when the Quran says you're allowed to lie, already you see that this is contradictory to what they say they're, they're based on. So this is actually part of the debate that the Kuzari uh, the, the, the book Kuzari spoke about when uh, Rabbi Uda Levi had a uh, debate with a, uh, with a king about a thousand years ago about all of the different religions, including Islam, Christianity, as well as Judaism, and literally disproving all of the uh, other religions while proving that Judaism is the only truth of God that exists in the world. So the problem is today that, again, Islam is also led by uh, a very uh, 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 fanatical type of uh, 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 leadership, and uh, very few people are allowed to even entertain uh, other uh, ideas, other uh, uh, you know, other religions, other beliefs, without putting their life at risk. Baruch Hashem, I merited to have several uh, students that came from Islam. Uh, either convert to Judaism or become righteous Noahides or be in the process of conversion. Uh, but uh, it was never easy for any one of them. Every single one of them had to have extreme changes in their life, part of which some of them was putting their life on the line, you know, running away from where they were. Uh, so this is something that's not common among other religions. And needless to say, it's not, uh, uh, it doesn't show a, a religion of peace like they claim it is. So... Uh, does Judaism talk about Islam? Yeah, it talks about how it's false. So, yeah. Uh, why is Talmudic Judaism different from Old Testament Judaism? Uh, well, there is no such thing as uh, uh, Old Testament Judaism and Talmudic Judaism. There is Judaism. That's it. The written Torah and the oral Torah are one. They're not two of the different. Now, the, what the problem is, what the Christian missionaries uh, that sometimes call themselves Messianic Jews... Or, or Hebrew Israelites, or uh, the, uh, the uh, people from Islam will sometimes tell you things about 
the uh, the written Torah and uh, things about the oral Torah in order to confuse you and mislead you. But what they don't tell you is that there would be no religion at all, not Judaism, not Christianity, and not Islam, without the oral Torah, which the primary part of the oral Torah is the Talmud. And the reason why is because part of what the oral Torah does is it gives us a understanding of what the oral Torah, what the written Torah actually says, the Old Testament actually says. So for example, in the book of Genesis, God says to Avraham to have a circumcision, to cut something called orla. Now, what is orla? Now, there, you're not going to find this word many times in the Torah. And in fact, you're never going to find a verse that gives you the definition for the word orla. So, if God says, cut this orla from your body, the average male, do you tell him, listen, God loves you, but he says that in order for you to show your love to him, and your commitment, you have to cut a piece of your body called orla. Now, you're going to ask the first question, if you're a smart person, you're going to say, okay, what's an orla? What's an orla? Now, if you're even smarter, you're going to not going to ask. You're going to simply determine, since they didn't tell me what the orla is, I'll just... Determine what the orla is. So maybe it's a piece of my ear. You know, cut off a little earlobe. Much easier than circumcision. Maybe it's the nails. I cut off a nail. Much easier than even the earlobe. Maybe it's a, uh, you know, it's a hair. Maybe, you know, what you could just simply decide. Obviously, if Avraham Avinu understood that the orla is the foreskin on the male member, the most sensitive part of the body. And he's still willing to do it at the age of 100 and then commit this very same act for the next 4,000 years until this day. Every Jewish baby that's born on the eighth day, unless they're medically unable to because they're sick or they're weak, on the eighth day, they have the very same circumcision that Avraham Avinu had at a hundred years old why didn't anybody reject it why didn't anybody throughout the last four thousand years say you know what i think orla means something else it maybe it means the nails maybe it means the beard maybe it means the nose maybe it means uh, a tooth anything but the foreskin but nobody ever said that everyone agreed including the christians including the muslims that the orla has always been the foreskin where did you get the definition it's not in the written Torah. It's not in the Old Testament. Where did you get it from? The oral Torah. The oral Torah is what gives us that. The same exact thing is in every other aspect of the Torah. So much so that the vowel system is not part of the, of the written Torah. Meaning if you read, if you go to a, uh, a synagogue, the synagogue, every synagogue has multiple Torah scrolls. You open a Torah scroll, all Torah scrolls are going to show you the same exact thing. It's going to be black ink on a, uh, a, a parchment that's white. And the words don't have the dots, the dashes. Don't have beginning or ending of statements. There's no sentences that are like structure of English and other languages. There's no vowel systems, no punctuation system on the Torah scroll. So how do you know where the sentence ends or where it begins or even how to pronounce the word or what the word means? Because in English, you have a letter-based vowel system, A-E-I-O-U, 
and sometimes Y. But in Hebrew, there is no letters that are the vowel system. Rather, there is the dots that you have under or inside the letters or the dashes. This is called Nikud. This is not part of the written Torah. This is something that is taught to us in the oral Torah. Which means that without it, you simply would not have the ability to understand a single verse in the Torah. For example, same example I've been giving for the last decade, if you wanted to say, Moses is righteous. So you would say, Moshe Tzadik. Moshe Tzadik. Now, in English, Moses is righteous is three words, and each one of those words has vowels in it. The word Moses has the O and the E. And therefore, without... The vowels, Moses turns into miss. Miss. Then you have is. Is has one vowel. That's an I. Without the I, all you have is a s. So miss. S. Then you have the word righteous. Righteous has multiple vowels. You have the I. Uh, you have the uh, uh, O and the U. So if you don't have the I and the O and U, the Righteous turns into rigs. So you have miss, s, rigs. Oh, perhaps sounds like maybe like a bark or maybe something, a sound that, uh, that uh, certain animals make. Certainly doesn't sound like Moses is righteous. Without the vowels, Moses is righteous is miss, Sounds like a curse maybe in different languages. So the nikud is from the oral Torah, not from the written Torah. Which means that all religions, Christianity, Catholicism, Islam, are dependent on this very same part of the oral Torah as Judaism. And without this oral Torah, no religion would exist. So you cannot ever say that you agree with Christianity but disagree with the oral Torah. Why? Because without the oral Torah, there wouldn't be Christianity. You agree with Islam, but you disagree with the oral Torah. There's no such thing as Islam without oral Torah. I agree with Judaism, but I don't agree with the oral Torah. There's no such thing. There is no Judaism without oral Torah. In fact, the only common denominators left between Judaism and the other religions end up coming from the oral Torah, not the written Torah. So when people say, no, the Talmud is bad, and Talmud has all types of strange things in it, that just simply means a couple things. Number one, the person is a manipulator. Number two, the person has never learned the Talmud. Number three, the person is an evil person that simply is going to look for something to serve their needs and manipulate it in order to influence the public. So when a person truly learns Talmud, they understand that this is the ultimate uh, uh, wisdom that could possibly exist, and all of the things that will sound strange, look strange, and even be strange, have explanations, have clarifications, many of which we've discussed over the years, many of which we will discuss in the future, but needless to say, if a person just looks at the uh, face value of anything in life, certainly they will uh, look, you know, see that there is something wrong. If you simply get medicine, but without understanding how medicine works, without understanding how much research went into the medicine, 
without understanding the risk of not taking the medicine. And the first thing you ever saw on medicine is simply the, uh, the, uh, what could happen. All of the side effects. Okay, what side effect? Get a headache, get a uh, nosebleed, uh, urinate uh, uncontrollably, uh, you know, uh, vomit uncontrollably, incapable of sleeping, heart attack, stroke, you know, on and on and on. You're going to say to your bro, no, hey, listen, buddy, I'm not taking this. This is terror. This is poison. No, 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 this is medicine. What is it medicine for? Oh, it's a medicine for uh, asthma. What? This is a medicine for asthma? Yeah, what about all these side effects? Yeah, these are possibilities, but it's worth the risk because if the person with asthma doesn't take it, he's going to die. And the likelihood of these side effects is very minimal. And even if you get side effects, you can control it where you can stop taking it and it doesn't get to that extent. But they still have to disclose it. So anything that you look at without being educated the right way is going to look like it's bad or simply it's going to look different than what it really is. If a person simply concluded who you are, each one of you that's watching right now, just by looking at you from afar, on an average Tuesday afternoon, Perhaps you had a bad hair day. Perhaps you had a bad, you know, day altogether. Perhaps you had a really good day. Perhaps you just won a bunch of money. Perhaps you just lost a bunch of money. You had a good uh, 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 meal. You had a terrible meal. You have a stomach ache. You don't feel well. But this person decides that he's going to conclude everything about you from afar without even talking to you just by looking at you from afar. Would you say that that's a fair analysis of who you are? Obviously not. And that's in essence what's happening from the missionaries and all the other ignoramuses that are trying to distort the Talmud. They look at it from afar without having a concept of what's really in it, without ever truly studying it, without truly understanding what's behind the scenes. But they look at it from afar and then they decide they become teachers. I even saw actually one time this, this, this gruesome, vile human being uh, uh, that's actually part of the uh, Hebrew Israelites who doesn't stop cursing and, and, and just literally speaks like some animal, or like just a disgusting person. Anyway, he says on air, he actually says on a video, which happened to be about me, and he says, I'm a Torah scholar. I know Talmud. I'm a Talmud scholar. He actually calls himself a Talmud scholar. He says, I got Talmud. And he takes out a book that says Talmud. And it's one single book. Now, what he doesn't realize, that the Talmud is not one book. It's not one book. If you combine the Jerusalem Talmud with the Babylonian Talmud, it's 60 different Masechtot. If you get the English version, you have uh, 150 books, more than 100 books. But he thinks that it's one book. He thinks it's one book. Meaning that his knowledge is so minimal that he doesn't even know what the Talmud is. Yet he says, I'm a Talmud scholar. Why? Because he has a book that says something about the Talmud. But it's a single book. Obviously, it's not the Talmud. But that's the ignorance here. His audience also doesn't know what the Talmud is. And therefore, they believe him. They say, yeah, look, he's got a book that says Talmud on it. I think it says Talmud for dummies, but that's a different story. 
The point being is, is that people that are uneducated about Judaism don't know what they don't know. Now, when it comes to medicine, when it comes to, uh, to, to other aspects of life, people are willing to admit what they don't know. If your doctor tells you, listen, I understand you're scared of this medicine, you're scared of this surgery, but you got to trust me, I've been doing this for 20 years. The average normal person takes their, takes their uh, word. You've been doing it for 20 years, 30 years, surgeries, medicine, everything. I'm going to trust you, even though I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how it's going to work. You're telling me it's going to work because you're an expert. Fine, I'm going to listen to you. You're a health professional. I'm going to listen to you. You go to your dentist. Your dentist tells you you have to take all these tooth out, teeth out. You have to put this one in. You have to make holes in this one. That's how you're going to fix it. All types of stuff that's painful and expensive. You don't question a dentist. Why? Because you know the last time you went to him with a toothache, he made it stop. You don't really know how he made it stop and why making holes in your teeth and putting some stuff in there and taking stuff out. You don't actually know how it worked. You just know it worked and it stopped hurting. So you went back and went and you were willing to accept whatever he told you to do. You didn't question it. The same thing is if you went to your accountant or your lawyer. And they told you, listen, you have to pay X amount of money in order to complete this thing and, and avoid all risk of going to jail or being arrested or getting fined or losing your business and so on and so forth. Now, you're not a legal expert or, or an accounting expert, but yet you pay them for that service because they're the experts. Meaning the average person has no problem expecting, accepting the expertise of others blindly. The only time that people have a problem accepting the expertise is when it comes to Torah. And in fact, the only place that has real expertise is the Torah. Why? Because unlike the lawyer and the doctor that has experience for the last 20 or 30 years, that is only connected to him and not to the generations before because even if he learned some medicine book medical books from previous generations most of the stuff from the previous generations is no longer relevant to this generation the equipment has changed the people have changed everything has changed so generally that 30-year experience that this doctor has is unique to him and will become insignificant in the next generation yet the torah that i'm teaching you the Torah that Rabbi Ephraim is teaching, the Torah that Rabbi Uvadia is taught, the Torah that the Rambam taught, the Torah that all of the sages taught has always been the same Torah. Relying on the generation before and the generation before and the generation before, all the way to Moshe Rabbeinu. Meaning that you're not relying on my expertise. I'm a zero. I'm less than zero. You're relying on Moshe Rabbeinu. You're relying on the great sages throughout all of the last several thousand years, their expertise, not mine. I'm simply just telling you what they said, saving you the time to read hundreds of books. Now, you're welcome to read the books yourself, but most people are not going to do it. Either they don't have the time or the ability or whatever. The point being is, you're not relying on my expertise, and you shouldn't. What you are relying on is the expertise of the sages for the last 3,000 plus years. Judaism is the only religion that has that. Nothing else has that. If you go to the medical world, to the legal world, they don't have that. Why? Because anything that's of yesteryear, anything from historically, generally speaking, more or less is useless. 
Same thing with Christianity. You go to the Christian pastors and priests and, 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 and missionaries of today, they're not teaching you what Martin Luther said. They're not teaching you what any of the so-called sages of Christianity said 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. They're not teaching you that. They're teaching you their current modern-day interpretation of what was written many, many centuries ago. Which means that the sages that were closest to when this religion started have no say, have no connection to the teachings of today. The original Pope is not taken into consideration by a local pastor or priest. The the second, the third, the fifth, the tenth Pope, the leaders of the religion, Martin Luther, any one of these people, their beliefs are not taken into consideration by anybody that's speaking to the Christian people today. So where do the Christian leaders get their information? Simple, they make it up. They make it up. Sometimes they'll actually watch me and other rabbis to get some new material and pretend like they came up with it. I have a few of them that I get uh, caught them a few times looking and saying certain things that they said. They even ask for information. They pretend to be Jewish. Point being is, they don't have a tradition. They have a speaking ability. That's it. And you think it's any different than Islam? Same exact thing. Perhaps it's not as obnoxious as Christianity is at times, but needless to say, it's the same thing. Your your average sheikh out there that's a uh, leading, that's that's telling people to uh, to follow Islam, to follow Muhammad, alhamdulillah, and all the good stuff. Fine. Where'd you get this information from? Which sage do you hear them mentioning? Generally speaking, you never hear them make a, mention a single sage. You have them tell you what certain verses in the Quran say. Who told you that this is what it says? Who told you that this is what it means? Well, I understand it. Meaning, they don't see that there's a difference between them today and the people that were closer to the foundation of their religion 1400 years ago. Now, any normal person would obviously agree that if I lived next door to Moses himself, certainly I am guaranteed to know more about what he said and what he taught than anybody else in the world today. Why? I live next to him. I went to his classes. I was there at Mount Sinai. So of course I know more than anybody else that's not there, that wasn't there. Now, if I lived two or three generations after Moses... Certainly, I wouldn't know more than the people that lived next door to him, but I still would know more than the people that that lived five generations after me. Why? I was closer to the source. Anybody played the, the, the game telephone? Things change over time, and obviously, the closer you are to the source... The, uh, the, the, the more you know, and even more so, the more details you have. Now, when you have Christianity and Islam simply disregard any wise person that they had, any leader that they had, or most leaders at least, throughout the last 50, 1,400 to 2,000 years, respectively, then what you end up having is that Whoever wants to be a leader in Islam, all he needs to know is either how to read the Quran 
or simply have to listen to YouTube videos of somebody else that read the Quran and then tell people what he thinks about it. That's it. You don't need anything else because you could simply make up whatever you wanted to say. That's not possible in Judaism. These types of things are not possible in Judaism. So this is the beauty of Judaism is that it's not only true because we say it's true, it's true because it's verifiable to the point where you cannot challenge it. The more you know, the more you realize there is no other truth. There is no other truth other than Torah. And this, Baruch Hashem, is something that all religions, in fact, depend on while they're rejecting it, which actually highlights their ignorance. Good question. Odd question. Is it against Judaism to date a non-Jew? Uh, yes, a Jew is forbidden from dating a non-Jew, marrying a non-Jew. It's uh, intermarriage is forbidden all the way from the time of Avraham Avinu. But uh, it, it was uh, much uh, uh, more significant uh, once Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah as a uh, prohibition from a Jew marrying or being intimate or dating a, uh, a non-Jew. If a, uh, a non-Jew is uh, interested in converting to Judaism, they have to convert first, and then they can date and marry a, a Jew. But uh, other than that, there's no permission whatsoever. Explain why God can't be a man? Well, because God himself says that he is infinite. He's not limited. Uh, he has no body and no likeness of a body. There are verses in the Torah that say so. So for a, uh, God to be a man, that would means that God would be contradicting of himself, lying about himself, which obviously does not make any sense. Uh, that's number one. Number two, for, for uh, God to be a man, that means that he would make himself limited. Uh, and uh, that is not possible. It's not possible for him to be a God and limited at the same time. So the uh, belief that God became a man is not a new belief. It wasn't invented by Christianity. In fact, the same exact story that Christianity has is uh, found in many other religions that, were, uh, that existed before it. 
uh, different forms of idolatry. Uh, that same exact thing, the virgin birth and uh, the, uh, the kid, the magic kid that pretends to be God, all that nonsense. So this is uh, all idolatry. Anyone that believes in the New Testament is simply following idol worship, according to all opinions. It's not a, uh, 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 you know, it's not something that uh, is a new thing. We'll make some limited. Uh, well, what makes them limited is that if a person is a, is a body, that means that they're material, they're physical. And physical cannot be in two places at the same time, or multiple places at the same time. So God cannot run the world if he's only in one place. Uh, so that's one. So number two, if you're going to say, no, no, but he has parts. Is the, there's the uh, one part here, there's one part there, there's one part everywhere. God doesn't have parts. He says he's one. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. God is one. He is one. He's not three. So to say that God has parts is contradictory to the Torah. To say that God has a body is contradictory to the Torah. Uh, and in so many words, there everything about Christianity uh, and the belief system in a trinity is contradictory to the Torah. Uh, this is the reason why Jews cannot believe in Jesus, uh, uh, because it's a uh, it, it's it's idol worship. Uh, to say three in one, that just simply means you divided God into three. God does not get divided; He is one. There's no three in one; He is one. That's it. It's, 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 you believe that uh, God is three because you were taught uh, that, and it sounds true to you. But when you the more you understand the, the basic principles of, of faith based on the Torah, the more you realize it's not possible. I actually have a few videos uh, on my uh, uh, TikTok channel that talk about uh, some of these short videos you could see over there. What, it's called What Jews Believe. There's about four or five videos over there that talk about the unification of God, how his thoughts, the past, the present, the future... Uh, is all one. It's all there is no separation between thoughts and action, like you have with a human being. You can think something but not do it. Uh, your past is separate from you. It's not. It's something that's be, be beyond uh, before you. Your future is beyond you. Your pre your present is your today. God doesn't have that. He is one, which means that past, present, and future is all one. If he was a human being, if he was a body, that cannot be. There it could not be a past, present, and future unless you're in the movies. Uh, all types of nonsense that's in the movies. This is not a matter of capability of God. It's a matter of that making him into a three or making him into a body makes him incapable. Him being one is what makes him God, is what makes him supernatural, is what makes him superior to us in every aspect, shape of the world. When you actually humanize God, you are minimizing God. Uh, you're not glorifying God. So that's also contrary to the Torah. Okay, let's see some questions from our friends on Facebook. What age should you start teaching a child about Gehenna, and how do you explain them about Gehenna? Do you teach them straight details, make it child-friendly? Uh, you know, generally speaking, everything that we do, we have to try to follow the words of our sages, uh, the words of the great sages, what they did themselves. Rabbi Vadya Alava Shalom, uh, he writes, and he said himself that uh, he... Uh, 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 taught his kids about Gehenna at the age of six. The age of six is when he started teaching them about Gehenna, some of them a little earlier, but again, it's kid-friendly. Kid-friendly doesn't mean false. Kid-friendly means that you limit some of the details. You don't have to go into the details 
of what happens in every single chamber and, and feeding them sand and so on. In so many words, when they're young, you have to simply tell them this is a place of punishment, fire, they get burned, and that's it. The kid gets the picture. This is not a good place. Now, there are uh, children's books that uh, discuss Musar, and there are some children videos that discuss uh, uh, Musar from Hasidut, from uh, different parts of Judaism that talk about Gehenim. Uh, they talk about Gehenna in a, uh, uh, in, in a very honest way. I actually, I wish they have the same type of books and videos for adults because many people need it, uh, especially today. But the point is there's much material out there. There's more honesty in the books written for children than there is in the books written for adults today. Uh, and uh, needless to say, when you're uh, teaching a kid at uh, at a uh, young age of uh, you know to, about Gehenim, you have to take everything into account. One of the things you have to take into account is the kid's mental capacity. Some kids are sharper than others. Some kids develop faster than others. Some kids are a little bit slower than others, and you have to be honest with yourself to know where your kid stands. So if your kid is a very sharp-witted kid, you could probably start teaching them uh, about uh, the you know, fire of Gehenna and punishment at the age of three years old, four years old. Uh, again, with, you don't need all the extra details that you saw in my movie. You could just simply tell them there's a place of fire for the wicked people. And they'll understand even better than you just by simply that. Just by simply that, they'll understand. And in fact, they, kids like to talk about Gehenna. Oh yeah, this wicked guy, he's going to Gehenna, right Abba? Yeah, he's going to get him. All right. Yeah, he's going. Abba, he's going to heaven. This guy's a good guy. Yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. Okay. They like to put everything in compartments. They like to know who's going to get him, who's going to heaven. Kids love uh, 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 clarification. They don't debate you. They ask good questions. And in fact, they ask better questions than adults many times. So kids, uh, ha- kids' books today are very good. There are many, many good books on Archgrove Feldheim that, uh, you know, that uh, have been written over the last uh, generation or so that are very, very good. Uh, but try to, uh, you know, uh, stick to the ones that have a lot of uh, support behind them and not something that is a uh, new tradition, new way of communicating. Uh, personally, you know, the, uh, the comic book types are not something that my family likes. We like more of the stories about the sages, story about the tzaddikim, stories from Hasidut, stories about the Sephardic Jews, story about Ashkenazi Jews, story about... All of the great sages that lived before us and all of the great stories that are part of our tradition from the Talmud, from the Mishnah, from uh, uh, the, uh, the, the Rin Torah, stories about the prophets, all of that stuff has a lot of, lot of interesting stuff, both for the adults and the children. And if anybody wants some recommendations of books, you could send me a text message. I could send you a few uh, names to get your kids based on their age and so on. But there's plenty of books and the more you read uh, with your kids, the more they're going to uh, have the right ashkafa, the right understanding of what's true and false, including the belief about Gehenna. But if all you talk about is Gehenna, it's no different than if you, all you talk about is going to heaven all the time. Neither one is good. You can't just talk about Gehenna. You can't just talk about Gan Eden. You have to, everything has to have a balance and also an understanding of why we're going there or there and why it should motivate me to do this or this. So it requires some investment from the parents uh, try to read to your kids uh, at least once a day. Uh, if they don't go to a regular school, then obviously much more than that. But the point is that the more a parent invests into their kids, the more they're going to get out of their kids. Uh, and in fact, as far as uh, whether your kid is uh, very sharp uh, and, and very uh, bright 
or your kid is slow, doesn't really make much of a difference because if you dedicate time to this kid to teach him Torah on a regular basis, he will become much better than you could possibly imagine. Regardless of where he starts. He could be slow, he could be fast, doesn't make a difference. The more Torah you put into that kid, the better you'll see the, uh, the kid uh, uh, become. And of course, make sure you protect him from bad things, uh, bad people, and so on. Uh, if one saw a dream of a broken tooth and didn't fast the next day, what else can they do? A uh, broken tooth is not uh, a, a necessity to, uh, uh, to fast. It's only if somebody lost a tooth, especially if they lost one of the molars in a dream, uh, the back teeth. Uh, then that's a called a, the Shulchan Aruch calls it a dangerous dream. But if their tooth broke in a dream, or even all of their teeth broke in a dream, it doesn't uh, mean anything. Uh, it just probably means you probably have to go to a dentist, maybe, or you have something on your mind that has to do with teeth. But uh, the dangerous dream is if somebody lost a tooth, especially if it's the, the back teeth. Uh, but if a person did lose uh, one of the uh, back teeth in a dream, uh, and they didn't fast the next day, then uh, they could, uh, you know, give tzedakah, uh, and, uh, and, and that's it. Do tshuva. Is there a debate of how much someone should investigate things? Uh, it all depends. It depends on what, what you're trying to learn. There are certain things that uh, can be uh, investigated, and you can find out the answer uh, in five minutes. There are certain things that I could take, uh, many years to investigate. It all depends on the depth of the subject. The uh, Gemara in uh, Moet Katan uh, discusses, it's actually one of the places that talks about the longest debate among the sages, which was about the smicha, the smicha that the hands, whether you put one hand or two hands over the, uh, uh, the, the sacrifice. Uh, and this was a debate that started with Bet Shemayim Bet Hillel, but which Shemayim Hillel? And this debate continued on for more than 200 years meaning it wasn't just the rabbis but the students and the students students and the students students for more than 200 years they debated this issue so obviously they all investigated they all learned it and they all believed in what they believed at certain times but the point being is that this is something that is an extreme but needless to say there is no limit to how much somebody needs to investigate something uh but it all depends on what they're investigating and what is their purpose what is their purpose of investigating? Why are they investigating? So it's, there is really no uh, uh, one-size-fits-all answer for that one. In the article Stone Edition, at the end of each parasha, they have listed Masoretic notes, which is not translated into English. A person who is a Baal Tshuva or convert, what are we to learn from these texts? Uh, some of these uh, texts are going to tell you the number of verses in the, in the uh, parasha, some of them are going to give you different acronyms that help people learn specific things from the parasha. There are different things, different lessons that are uh, mentioned there. Uh, these are different tools that the sages use throughout the generation uh, to help people commit things to memory uh, and commit specific facts because they, uh, the Gemara Masechet Chagah says that uh, there were the, uh, the, the sages that knew to count the letters. What does it mean to count the letters? They literally knew how many letters are in every sentence in the uh, Torah, where each letter is, how many times it appears in the entire Torah, in the entire parasha, and they investigated and analyzed 
surgically the Torah to such an extent that they knew every single uh, thing that you possibly can. This is similar to somebody that has a, uh, a very precious collection of watches or of diamonds or of paintings or anything that's very valuable to them. The more valuable it is to a person, the more they know about it, the more they investigate into it. So for the sages, the most valuable thing they had is the Torah. So they made sure that they could know everything they possibly could about it, including things that the average person would think is inconsequential, such as the number of letters and, uh, uh, and uh, sentences and so on. But of course, there are many lessons to be learned from that as well, including Torah secrets. Uh, should a person keep the entire Sefirah like the Arizal and uh, until Shavuot, not cut his hair until Erev Shavuot? Eh, you should do whatever your tradition is. Sephardic Jews could already start getting haircuts now. Whatever your tradition is, whatever your rabbi does, you could do. Uh, is a Jew or a, non- or a non-Jew allowed to participate in jury duty? Uh, well, jury duty is not necessarily something that you have much of a choice about if you live in America. Uh, you, uh, this is part of the rules of the land. Now, uh, generally speaking, a person can get themselves to be less likely to be chosen in jury duty by simply telling them that their religious beliefs are contrary to the uh, court system. Uh, but uh, needless to say, uh, you know, it's, a, it's something that you can't really avoid. You can't really avoid. Uh, it's one of the rules of the land, uh, just like paying taxes and otherwise. Uh, so if somebody would avoid j- jury duty, you could get them in trouble and go to jail. So there's no permission to go to jail for the sake of avoiding ju- jury duty. Uh, so therefore, a person is allowed to do it because he's anus. But uh, again, if a person learns enough Torah, Hashem will remove those things from his life. May the Rabbi please elaborate on what would be considered bitul Torah considering... The many ways we have these days to study, uh, in, uh, such as Shurim, YouTube, Torah, Torah. Uh, as far as Bitul Torah, there's a, uh, levels of Bitul Torah. There's the common level, which is a person is able to study and simply chooses not to study Torah because they choose to do some other superficial activity, such as play basketball or other sports, video games, you know, uh, watch TV. That's Bitul Torah, and they'll be punished for it. Then there's other levels of Bitul Torah, uh, such as they, um, they're learning, but not to their level. Meaning, he is already at a level where he could read, he could learn the poskim or the, the Talmud, but he chooses to uh, watch uh, short video clips with stories about Tzadikim. Now, those, that's, those stories are great, but if you turn that into your primary Torah, when you could be or you're already at a level where you could learn poskim, you could learn a Talmud, uh, then that's bitul Torah. It's uh, bitul of the echut of the Torah. Uh, or on the other hand, you could be a guy that can learn, let's say for example, a shiur Torah like this one, but instead he uh, decides to go learn a shiur Torah by a heretic. That's bitul Torah. Uh, or he can learn a shiur Torah like this one, but instead he decides to go watch some uh, motivational speaker. To, to, that's bitul Torah. Or he could watch a story about tzaddikim. He's, that, he's at a low level, but he's needless to say, he's new and he's committed. He could learn Torah about tzaddikim, but he decides to watch a cartoon uh, that is uh, not about tzaddikim, but just about uh, superficial things that he already knows about. Because he, he likes this clip, so he watches it for the 15th time, and he refuses to go further. 
That's Bitul Torah. So there are different levels of Bitul Torah. There's the Bitul of, the, of, of, of time. There's also the Bitul of, a, uh, of, of the quality. And in essence, what, you're, what it's saying is that Bitul Torah is a person wasting their time. And instead of learning Torah, they're wasting that time with something that is less than what they're supposed to do, less than what they're uh, ob- uh, obligated to do. May I enter a conservative or reformed synagogue and a restaurant that is just kosher, but may be open on Shabbat in order to drop off amazing queue of material? Uh, to enter a reformer or conservative synagogue, if it's the place that they pray in, no. You're not allowed to enter that, just like you're not allowed to enter a church, a place of idolatry, but you can enter the lobby area. The lobby area, if we're not the place that they pray, you can enter the lobby area and drop off the stuff. I generally uh, never really had anybody have much success in dropping off the material uh, in reform and conservative uh, synagogues. Many times they're are some people that are interested but there's always at least one wicked person that decides on behalf of everyone that no one is interested and takes it and throws it out so uh, i would uh, suggest uh, putting it in other places uh, as far as a restaurant if it's a, uh, a restaurant that's open on shabbat then it's not kosher uh, even if they say they are selling kosher food you're never allowed to eat there but you are allowed to enter the place and put the queue of material there hopefully the owner uh, uses that cure material for himself and stops violating Shabbat. Are women allowed to study Gemara and Talmud? Gemara and Talmud are synonymous, it's the same thing. Uh, Allahically, they are allowed, but is not recommended. Uh, and, and it's frowned upon for a woman to study the Talmud. Primarily because the, uh, uh, there is a lot of other things that a woman needs to learn uh, that are relevant to her. Whereas the majority of the Talmud is not relevant to a woman. It's not relevant to our life. It's not relevant to our observance of Torah. She has to learn a lot of things already. And most women don't know what they need to learn. She has to not only learn Musar and, 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 and character development. She also has to learn the laws of Shabbat, the laws of all the holidays, the laws of Tzniut. This alone is literally a library of books. The average woman doesn't know even half of what she needs to know about the laws of Shabbat or holidays or modesty. Or, you know, the average woman knows basics, what she learned at her mom's house or what she heard in the shiul. <clears throat> so you can't go and abandon what you're obligated to learn and go learn things that you're not obligated to learn. That's number one. Number two, generally speaking, the uh, a woman is a lot busier handling the household than a man. So she's not going to have that kind of time to learn Gemara uh, with a uh, you know with the right type of teacher to teach her uh, how to understand and what to understand. That's number two. Number three, most people you know women that learn Gemara are usually heretics, people that have all types of new beliefs that are contrary to the Masoret, and they're doing it out of the feminist mentality and not out of their righteousness. So uh, this is also a reason why it's frowned upon. There are other reasons, uh, one of them being that there's a lot of issues in the Gemara that are simply not good for women to learn about. Spiritually, they're not good for women to learn about, create problems for them. So it's not recommended for a woman to learn. Is it allahically allowed? It's allowed, but it's not recommended. And not everything that's allowed is recommended. Um... 
Can a Sephardic Jew become Chabad or must he stick to his Nusach? No, Sephardic Jew has to stick to his Nusach. What is the final halacha on Gentiles having Olam Abad? The Rambam contradicts himself on this topic in Ilchot Tshuva. No, the Rambam does not contradict himself with this. We learned from Masechet Sanhedrin, Perik Chelek, that the Kol Yisrael uh, Eshlem Chelek Laolam Abba, and Kol Yisrael is referring to both uh, Jews and righteous Gentiles. This is also mentioned by uh, uh, the Ravavadya, uh, Allah Shalom, in Anaf Etzavot, in the first Mishnah. Kol Yisrael is referring to both Jews and righteous Gentiles uh, have a share of the world to come. Another place the Rambam mentions is that uh, a, uh, we learn from Perik uh, Chelek that it talks about the uh, few people that do not have a share of the world to come, and one of them is Bil'am. And he says that from there, since we know that Bil'am does not have a share of the world to come, that also teaches us that Gentiles generally do have a share of the world to come and go to heaven if they're righteous and they're not like Bil'am. So, from there we also learn. Plus, if you look at the, uh, uh, the uh, introduction to Masechet uh, Sanhedrin, Perek Chelek, by the Rambam, he talks about it in there. Uh, so, uh, he certainly does not contradict himself. And righteous Gentiles do have a share of the world to come. Uh, someone asked me to ask you, why do we pray? Uh, we pray for multiple reasons. Number one, we pray as a way for us to uh, serve Hashem and uh, show gratitude for everything He's given to us. Number two, we pray because we apologize during our prayers for the misdeeds that we've done. Uh, number three, we connect to God uh, through our prayer. We're talking to our Creator. We're talking to our Father in Heaven. Uh, if you had the opportunity to talk to the most special person in your life, uh, you would want to talk to them for as much as possible, for as long as possible, uh, and, and for as, as frequent as possible. So you have the Creator, the, your Father in Heaven, the one that loves you more than you love yourself and more than anybody else loves you, available to you at all time. How do you, how do you uh, talk to Him? Pray. You pray to Him. And that's uh, one of the uh, wonderful gifts that Hashem gave us, is to have the ability to talk to Him whenever we want. Don't forget to donate. Yeah, anybody wants to donate, can donate on the pages or on the website, uh, bhtorah.org, and the other ones that I mentioned. Uh, is doing it by the dude for one hour a day the right ashkafa? Uh, the Garden of Emunah pushes to do it every day for a significant amount of time. Also, the Anuka does it. Should a Bahu in Yeshiva do it? That all depends on how much you learn. If you're learning 10 hours a day and you want to do a, uh, you know, and you, wanna, you pray in addition to that and you still have another hour a day to, uh, to do it with a dut, you can. Uh, I don't remember uh, any of the great sages that uh, I've learned from or uh, about uh, doing that, uh, but you can if you're learning 10 hours a day. But if you're learning four or five hours a day, for you to spend 25 hours of your time on it with a dut is simply not the approach that uh, you know that Chachamim do. Uh, people that do that typically are more hippie-ish and delusional, uh, and they're not only the Chachamim. Uh, they just like to go to the forest. Uh, you don't need to go to a forest to do it, but do it. You could do it 
in your office, you could do it in your car, you could do it anywhere. The best itbodedut you possibly can have, and I've learned this directly from Ephraim, the best itbodedut is simply to open up a sefer and delve into it and completely eliminate any thought of the world, eliminate your phone, eliminate the screen, eliminate everything, go into the sefer for a good seven hours straight, or if you can't seven hours, four hours straight, itbodedut of all itbodedut. You're going to feel, you're going to feel uh, the, uh, the, the creator. So uh, it's, that's the Buddhadut that, uh, you know, that uh, certainly is recommended for all. Uh, but again, if somebody wants to pray private prayer to Hashem, no problem. But to make that the, you know, the, the number one thing they spend their time on, I don't remember any big chacham doing that, uh, including the ones you've mentioned. They don't spend 10, uh, you know, 20% of their day doing it Buddhadut or even 10% of their day. Why did, Eliyahu, why did Hashem choose Eliyahu Navi rather than any of the other prophets? Uh, well, Eliyahu Navi was very zealous for Hashem. He, Eliyahu Navi is, is, is Pinchas. Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Cohen, Parashat Balak, Kadosh Baruch Hu, uh, has Pinchas uh, take vengeance on his behalf. And Parashat Pinchas, Kadosh Baruch Hu blesses Pinchas with uh, life forever. Briti Shalom. Briti Shalom is having the Shekhinah on top of Pinchas for the rest of his life, and to never die. And Pinchas becomes Eliyahu Navi, say the Chachamim. Uh, and he was zealous for Hashem, and he was willing to, to die for Hashem. Uh, which, again, all of the stages and greats uh, were willing to die for Hashem, but he was at the ultimate extreme uh, that, uh, of zealousness to, uh, to Hashem. And there's other, other aspects of Eliyahu Navi that were very unique to him. What's the good method to learn Yalkut Yosef or Halacha in general, specifically English version of Ilchot Shabbat? Uh, best version is to set up a time every single day to learn it. Uh, you could learn it uh, right after you finish praying in the morning before you take off your tefillin. Before you take off your tefillin, open up a Yalkut Yosef, read two, three, four Halachot. Depending on how much time you have while you have your tefillin on, read two or three Halachot. Start off the day nice, fresh, with a delicious meal of Yalkut Yosef. That's the way you can start off the day. That already you stole 15, 20 minutes from the Satan. You already started off the day the good way. If you have more time, of course, more time. After that, you know, at some point during the day, you know, you could uh, take uh, an alakha here and there. That's also good. Number three is having a chavuta, having somebody that you study with, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, you have a set time that you're learning with them, learn with them a half hour a day, uh, or, you know, it's a, uh, or more, depending on your schedule. Uh, and part of that time will be, uh, you know, will be learning Yalkut Yosef. In fact, I have a, uh, one, uh, uh, one dear uh, Talmud and friend that uh, has actually been Chavuta with some of my other Talmudim uh, for years already. One guy actually has been with them for seven years and he teaches them Yalkut Yosef already for seven years and other things. Uh, and Baruch Hashem, he studies with them. If anybody is looking for a Chavuta, uh, I could try to help you with it as far as uh, arranging somebody to study with you. For, you know, but again, uh, if you already have one, uh, then uh, use what you have. But uh, certainly if you need one, uh, you know, let me know and I could uh, try my best to arrange it. But the point being is to be dedicated and to set time every day to learn it. Uh, it's, not, it's not a book that you need to learn for an hour or two hours at a time. You can learn it for 20 minutes, a half hour at a time uh, each day. You know, uh, if you have a lot of time to learn a day, an hour. You know, but uh, again, it all depends on, on the quantity of time that you have to learn for the entire day.
Should Jewish men put effort into learning Hebrew, including for certain major prayers, or is it better they focus on learning? It all depends on the amount of time that they have to learn every single day. If a person has two hours or more per day to learn, then they could spend 15 minutes, 20 minutes a day learning a little bit of Hebrew. It's not going to hurt. But if they only learn an hour a day, less than two hours a day, they don't have time to learn Hebrew. They just need to learn the basics of what to say, when to say it, and uh, eventually they could, uh, uh, you know, spend some more time learning Hebrew. But uh, if they have three, four, five hours a day to learn, then certainly they could put a half hour, 40 minutes of that time to learn a little bit more Hebrew if they want for a period of time. Not forever, for a period of time. Don't make Hebrew your Judaism. Hebrew is not Judaism. Hebrew is a language that is used in Judaism, but it's not a prerequisite in order for you to be a righteous Jew. No one goes to uh, heaven just because they speak Hebrew. But people do go to, to, to heaven because they know Torah. So if you could learn enough Torah while simultaneously learning some Hebrew, good for you. But if you don't have time to do both, then obviously you have to learn Torah. That's the priority. Is the live still available on uh, Twitter? I didn't do Twitter tonight uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, TikTok is back on. Uh, so these guys at TikTok are a little bit more lively. Uh, uh, Twitter is a little bit, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's back, you know, it's not up to date. They're, you know, they're working on it to make the, 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 uh, the videos over there, the live feed over there better. Right now it's not really up to date. Uh, the resolution is terrible. The, the, uh, the type uh, the way that you could share it is terrible. So it's not really something that, uh, is worth doing. Uh, live uh, stream on yet, but I'm assuming that they're going to have a much better live stream available in the future. And Bezat Hashem, when they do, Bezat Hashem, we will uh, uh, consider certainly uh, going over there. I do think that uh, Twitter is uh, eventually going to replace uh, the uh, you know all the other major social medias, and especially Facebook. Facebook, I personally hate, but since many of you guys are still on Facebook, we still do our live feed on Facebook. But if it was up to me, I'd never use Facebook again. Facebook is lefty, liberal, anti-Torah. They've been censoring us already for several years, not allowing our, uh, our own people to see things on our pages, censoring our own people. We're not even talking about censoring us, our ability to market to new people. They're not even allowing us to, to market to our own people, to reach our own people with videos. Many people say, listen, I follow your page, but I never see your stuff. And then you realize that literally they're, they're, they're uh, uh, what is it called, uh, shadow banning us. So, uh, and there's nothing that you can do about it. I've tried to talk to them a million times. I've tried to pay them. Uh, they're, they're simply uh, enemy of the Torah. Hopefully, Hashem breaks them in half to the point where they're forced to simply uh, unshadow ban a lot of people. Uh, you know, that, that, uh, that, uh, but in, in the meantime, this is what we have. But that's why also it's good that we have our own uh, feed on bh.live. Uh, we have YouTube, oh Hashem, and uh, you know, it's enough. But, you know, and we have TikTok now. But when uh, there's other opportunities that present themselves, certainly we'll always look at uh, new ways to, uh, uh, to reach more people. Uh, you know, uh, it would, ideally I would like for it to be only one place, but the truth is that there's different people use different technology. And my interest is to try to reach as many people as possible so I can help as many people as possible. So if that means that I have to get another camera for an, another microphone, another equipment, another headache to reach another Jew somewhere else in the middle of the world, by all means. You know, it's worth it. It's worth it times a million. Uh, let's see. 
If you forget to count the Omer, uh, do you still say the blessing the next day? No, you no longer say the blessing from that moment on until the Omer counts. You say the, uh, uh, the count, but you don't say the Omer. You don't say the blessing on the Omer. Can a woman have a Chavruta, that's another woman, she's close to, to study uh, Yokut Yosef? Yes. Uh, should I feel bad? Yeshiva guys call me a cheater for using uh, Mitziva or Art Scroll. Should I only learn where no one sees me? Anybody that calls you a cheater for using Art Scroll is a kufel in Gdolei Israel. He's a kufel in Gdolei Israel and will have to be punished for it and also have Midat Amalek. You should never talk to them again. And the reason why is because Gdolei Israel, Rav Yashiv, Rav uh, 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 Fein, uh, David Feinstein, Rav Moshe Feinstein, uh, uh, all of Gdolei Israel supported art school and said uh, that it's the greatest thing uh, that uh, was in the Torah world. Rav uh, 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 Steinemann, Rav um, uh, Kanievsky, many of the Gedolim uh, appreciated a, uh, 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 what art school did and, uh, and how it's a great benefit to the generation. But the truth is, it's not, they didn't just appreciate it because they made it easier for people to understand the Pshat. This is not what they, why they supported it so much. There are other ways to understand the pshat and easier ways than just simply looking at a blood kamara and, 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 and breaking your head on it. There are other ways. So why do they appreciate it so much? Because they made it in such a uh, 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 nice presentation that it makes it much more likely that the person could not only arrive at the correct pshat, the right meaning of what the Gemara says, but also it gives him the ability to now use all of the energy that he has to actually develop upon it and understand the var mitoch davar, to understand more than what the Gemara is, is, is saying from the pshat. He's not exerting all of his energy on arriving at the pshat, he's exerting his energy on other things, on learning more, on, on learning, on learning uh, 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 more details, the problem is with people that are against the, the, uh, the uh, art school, it's usually people that are amearatzot, the complete ignoramuses. They've never completed anything in their life. They've never completed the shas at least once. And they've never completed tosfot. They've never completed any real scheme to speak of. Maybe they completed a, a, a basic book by a local chassid. Other than that, they didn't complete anything of value. Maybe they completed a few dapim here and there, but never a complete masechet. But they have a lot of jealousy, and they don't know how to control that jealousy. They don't want to control their mouth. They don't have basic level of midot. They don't know the basic halacha. They are never allowed to tell anybody not to learn Torah in the way that is uh, making them successful. It's midat amalek. Udvar Hashem bazak. Karet karet nafsho. This is an idin karet for what they did. They have no idea what kind of hole they build themselves in. They have no idea what they did to themselves. Literally, if I was, if I was them, I would cry on the floor right now. I would cry on the floor, bang my head on the floor until HaKadosh Baruch forgives me. For, for what they did. You have no idea how much bad people get for doing things like this. Because what they do is they discourage people from having any sense of achievement without having anything else that, that is equivalent. And the worst part about it is that they're not doing it for the betterment of that person. They're just doing it purely out of jealousy. They're doing it purely out of arrogance. Nothing good ever comes out of them. You cannot be right and Rav Moshe Feinstein wrong. You cannot be right, and Rav David Feinstein wrong. You cannot be right by, by Rav Steinemann wrong. You, it's not possible for these little P 
peanuts, nothing zeros that do not even have half a shas behind them to be right and one of Gdolei Israel to be wrong. It's simply impossible. I spoke to some people from art school. I spoke to some people that are serious Talmidei Chachamim. Literally, the, the, the amount of wisdom behind what they put there is beyond what an average person can even comprehend. The average person doesn't even benefit from what Archkol can offer. But the average person doesn't understand that Archkol is not making the Gemara easy for you. It's just simply eliminating the chances of you making a mistake on the basics. Real learning happens after that. Real learning is developed after you got the Pshat. That's the part that you have to break your head no matter how many translations you have. So that's, that's how little these people know. They don't understand that what Archkel offers you is not all the details and the secrets and all. It doesn't think for you. It gives you the basics in order to eliminate the mistake. I've spoken to a lot of young Bahuim. Many times they went to yeshiva their whole life. They learned the, the, the way that people learn. I ask them, okay, what are you learning now? Oh, Bametzia. Okay, no, what's, uh, what, pay, what daf are you on? They don't even know what daf they're on. They don't even know what daf they're on. Okay, what's the last sugya that you learned? Uh, I think it was uh, the show. They're not even sure. Okay, no, fine. Tell me, what, what do you know? Tell me what you know. Nine out of ten times, even what they think they know is wrong. Why? Because they don't understand the language. Nine out of ten times, the Bachuim do not understand the language anywhere near as they think they understand it. And that little difference, that small difference in understanding the language makes all the difference. Makes all the difference. Like... The amount of, uh, uh, of, of ignorance a person has to have to, to criticize a Talmidei Chachamim that supported something to help people understand the basics is beyond. Because what ends up happening is that people don't understand that there are certain terminologies in Judaism, in, in the Talmud, in the Torah, that... There is no correct translation for it in English or any other language. And thereby requires certain commentary on it. And if you do not know that, you're not going to understand anything. You're not going to, you're going to stand wrong. Sometimes there are certain lingos that are used by poskim that they're saying, uh, 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 let's say, Rav uh, Chai. Uh, now, there was a Rav Achai Gaon, Rav Achai Gaon, a, uh, the famous uh, Rav, but there's a Achai that if you only put the one psik on it, it's referring to my brother. It's not Achai. It's, not the, it's, it's spelled the same way as Achai, but it has one psik instead of two psik. The point being is, if a person learns a lot of poskim, they know exactly what I'm talking about. One psik, two psik, they exactly know. If they don't learn poskim, they're thinking that whoever quoted this is, is making a mistake. Because they're calling this person a, uh, a, an author of, uh, of a book that was written 800 years ago when the, the author really wrote a book uh, 20 years ago, 100 years ago. So the average person reading a Talmud today is not taught a lot of this stuff. The average person is not even taught to start a Gemara and finish a Gemara. Usually they give them random pages from different places. So when a person learns art school from beginning to end, reads everything on the page... I can assure you that person will become a much bigger Talmud Chacham than the vast majority of people that are, are out there. Needless to say, all of the people that are mocking him, all of the people that are making fun of him.
All of them, without exception. Most of those people, many times, will not even become, will not even be religious in a few years. Why? Because it's midat amalek. Midat amalek to discourage somebody from learning Torah is midat amalek. It comes from arrogance. It comes from a bad place, and it's 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 it's, it's literally something that if they understood what they did, they would cry on the floor like tikkun chatzot. Tikkun chatzot, they cry on the floor for doing that. And unfortunately, I've had many many stories of people doing that. Sometimes even rabbis. Sometimes even rabbis, and all, they only realize they did something bad after they destroyed the kid. He doesn't want to learn anymore because he feels like his three quarters of a masechet that he finished with archkol is not good enough. He has to start all over. He doesn't have the energy and uh, he loses everything. Whereas I've had an avrich come to me. I've had an avrich come to me. He was already an avrich for five, seven years. Avrich for seven years. Meaning he went throughout the entire yeshiva system. His father was a rabbi. He was told me the yeshiva his whole life. Learned his whole life. Became an avrich after yeshiva. Seven years, when I met him, he came to me, he told me, I told him, I started talking about what he learns, this, that, and the other thing, I learned, you know, a little bit already, and I told him, would you, um, which Masechet have you completed? He said, I did uh, Masechet Tubot and Brachot. I said, wait, for what, 20 times, 50 times, what do you mean? What do you mean, Masechet Tubot, what do you mean? You're, you're, you're 30 years old, you finished two Masechetot, seven years in a kollel, your whole life? He goes, yeah, it takes us a long time to finish a masechet. I said, you're killing yourself. I told him, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is against what G'dolei Israel taught. You go to a uh, Achtov L'Yisrael, Perek Bet. The uh, Rabbi Ephraim writes a whole tshuva about learning and how people that they do in yeshivot today is literally destroying people. It's not helping people. Many of, all of G'dolei Israel were against it. Rav Shach, Rav uh, Ovadia Yosef, many of G'dolei Israel were against the way that people teach in yeshivot today. With all this pool and going back and forth, five hours on the same page, all this stuff is not the way that uh, you learn Torah. Either way, I told him, you're killing yourself for no reason. You're not going to become Talmud Chacham this way. Learn arch crawl. Learn arch crawl. You'll be able to start finishing Masechtot. You'll be able to learn Masechtot. Don't take uh, four years, three years to finish Masechet Brachot. It's crazy. You could finish it in, uh, in a month, two months. If you learn more, less, obviously. But uh, certainly it shouldn't take uh, uh, three, four years to finish. And needless to say, two masechtot in a lifetime, 30 years old already, seven years in a kolel, and all they learn is Gemara all day. Seven years, two masechtot. Long story short, he was Bo Hashem. I was fortunate enough to convince him. After that, he started finishing one masechtot after the other, finished masechtot Shabbat, finished Abu Dazara, finished uh, uh, many others, Bo Hashem. He... Uh, each time he finished it, every time, you know, he would send me a video of his Siyu Masechet, how happy he is, how it changed his life. He finally knows something. And Baruch Hashem, it helped. Uh, Baruch Hashem. So again, if a person knows anything, anything about Torah, they would never in their wildest dreams ever speak against another person learning. Needless to say, another person having a uh, more likely uh, opportunity to understand the Pshat from learning art school. Only arrogant ignoramuses speak against it. Nobody that's worth a grain of salt will speak against it. Uh, and, uh, and again, because it's not speaking against the book, it's, it's speaking against logic, and it's speaking against G'dolei Israel that vouched for them. And they didn't vouch for them for no reason. Now, if a person is just starting right now, he's five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, 
he's learning Torah, he's advanced, he's ready to start learning Talmud. Of course, you give him a regular Talmud, you don't give him an art school because he can learn everything from the beginning. He has all the time in the world. He's 10 years old, 9 years old. But if a person is about you by 18, 20, 25, 30, 35, there's no need for him to go back to uh, uh, the, that. You need to learn the way that is going to get you to pretty much be on an even playing field with somebody that's been learning their whole life. You're an even playing field on day one. And that is what is necessary. That is going to give your person a sense of accomplishment that is necessary for them to achieve anything in their life. Thank you very much for learning with me. May Hashem bless each and every single one of you. I need to keep some of my energy, Baruch Hashem, to do another lecture later today, uh, tonight, in Hebrew. Uh, and, uh, but uh, this year will be online on uh, YouTube later on uh, t- uh, tomorrow. And again, anyone that wants to donate, support, uh, can go to our website, bhtorah.org or bezatashem.org or go to the store, the BH Kiruv store, and order some stuff to distribute in their community, USBs, the cards, which are certainly my favorite thing to give out to people because it gets them directly to where they need to learn some of these movies, watch these movies, get inspired, and then learn the rest of the lectures. Watch it, learn it. And Bezat Hashem, be holy. Call to Bachabat Slachah.